Welcome to Woodsboro, a quiet little burg that is about to become a media circus. A teenage girl and her boyfriend are brutally murdered, and it has some connection to a murder that happened a year prior. This killer, dubbed Ghostface because of his frightening mask, is murdering everyone connected to high school senior Sidney Prescott. And Sidney must figure out the killer's identity before she runs out of friends and family. In what many horror fans consider to be Wes Craven's masterpiece, this 1996 horror classic started a franchise that is four films and one TV series strong with a fifth film on the way. This is Scream. I'm Connor Izagari. I'm Austin Johnson. And this is a very special episode of Filmgasm. Welcome to the 82nd episode of the Filmgasm podcast. New logo and new unofficial production company, Filmgasm Productions, to go with it. More on all the cool shit we're planning at the end of the show. First up, we have a very cool announcement and introduction. Today we are joined by a very special guest. You've read his reviews, and now he's here via Skype to join us on Scream. Ladies and gentlemen, Josh Allred. Thanks for joining us on what I'm sure will be many episodes to come. I certainly hope so. Uh, thank you for having me, and uh, I am in the flesh, so to speak. No <laughs> longer will you read my words. You'll have a voice to put with that wonderfully handsome face on the site. <laughs> Fantastic. And uh, eventually we do plan on having Caleb join uh, the show as well when it is uh, convenient for everyone. We'll, uh, we'll keep you updated when that happens. But for the moment, we've got three out of four, and as Jet Nicholson once said, that ain't bad. Before we begin, I've got one rewind, and it's on today's episode. Imagine my luck. <laughs> David Arquette announced he will be officially joining the upcoming Scream 5, set to be directed by Matt Bettinelli-Olpin and Tyler Gillette, the duo who directed last year's horror comedy hit Ready or Not. So far, he's the only confirmed returning cast member, but I would bet money that Nev Campbell and Courtney Cox will come back, too. They always do. Scream 5 is set for release in 2021, but that's tentative. What do you guys think about Scream 5? Uh, okay, so I am... I, I, I'm, I'm okay with it, the idea of it at least, because the production is actually going to be in my hometown of Wilmington, North Carolina. Um <laughs> So it's great. Um, I know some people from there that'll be getting some work out of it, um, but it's not going to be the same because there's no Wes Craven in the director's chair. So that for me immediately puts it on the highly skeptical list of how good it's going to be. The team that's making it, okay, they've got something going for them there. However, with how I felt about Scream 4, I was just like, Oh, it just, it was lackluster. I wasn't a fan of it. Um, they were kind of like, you know, beating the dead horse to try and get some more change out of it, but it wasn't, it, it wasn't that good. I didn't like it. Fair enough. Uh, Austin, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, I echo that as well. I think the biggest thing for me, and I think for both of us or all three of us would be Wes Craven not being there um, already immediately taints the taints the experience, taints the project altogether. So yeah, I, I'm not I'm not too excited, but I'm not as big of a Scream fan as you guys are. So I I'm already that's not really on my radar necessarily. But if Wes Craven's out, I'm out. Yeah, it is a shame. Um, 
I don't know. Uh, the Scream franchise has always found its way to being charming. I think Scream 4. Entertaining, while, yeah. Yeah. Well, not the best of the franchise. It was it was watchable. It was decent. Like, I'll watch Scream 4 before I watch Elm Street 5. Like, it's just, there's something about Scream that I think is just fun to watch. And I think the two guys they got behind this did so well with Ready or Not that I'm really interested to see how they handle this. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think I think you bring up a good point with screen. There's such an aesthetic there that um that you just you know what you're getting into and you, you kind of go back to that because of that entertainment value. So yeah, I agree with you, man. Yeah. Well, we'll see. I mean, I'm gonna see it. Uh the fact that David Arquette's coming back, I think that's gonna open the floodgates for pretty much everyone else who's still alive to come back. Yeah. For I don't sure. know. Like, it's not like they got anything else going on. <laughs> <laughs> right well that's that's the thing you said it's tentative it's like well everything is right now because of the state we're in with the uh with the theaters and movies even being released so yeah it's a real touchy yeah well that's off the rewind so let's go around the room um gentlemen what was your first experience with scream josh why don't you start us off uh well i'm probably one of the only ones who is old enough to have seen it in a theater because Boy. i am the resident old fuck yes. of the group. Yeah, well, we, we, we were both only one when it came out in theaters. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Don't remind me. Um, so, I don't know, like, uh, Connor and I talked about, like, where my roots are in horror movies and stuff like that. And it, was, it was Nightmare on Elm Street that really kind of, you know, paved the way. Um, and, you know, going, being able to go see Scream um, I, I kind of talked about it a little bit in my review for Scream, kind of what the state of horror movies were, slashers specifically at that time. And it wasn't very good. I mean, you had a lot of more like monster type movies and things like that, uh, sci-fi stuff, but nothing really in the slasher playground. And when this came out, it pretty much like kicked the teeth in of the genre itself but also like reinvented it at the same time and just started this wave of, you know, self-aware. I mean, I, I really hate the word meta because when I was in film school, they, they taught us that films that were kind of conscious of what they were doing are known as self-reflexive. They're, they're able to look at what they're doing and be able to turn that mirror on themselves. This whole meta catchphrase nonsense really, drives me crazy whatever um but you know it it started a trend i mean after that you had i know what you did last summer uh was disturbing behavior the faculty lots of all these other things that were writing in screams wake so it definitely you know it kick-started slashers again and it also um was a trendsetter very true. Very true. Scream is one of the most I'd say it's one of the most important horror films in the genre as far as kind of elevating a dying subgenre. And also, I think, kind of giving Wes Craven a second wind. I mean, just you know, prior to this, he just done uh, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which I fucking adore. That's my favorite of the Elm Street franchise. But I don't think that had nowhere like anywhere near the success that Scream had for what Wes Craven <laughs> No, and I think it it wasn't as like as noticed 
as Scream was because it was Wes Craven still playing within his own sandbox, so to speak. And I mentioned that again, I'm not to beat my own drum here with my review, but I bring that up. It's, um, you know, he had already done this kind of thing where he poked right in at his own film, his own world and did the exact same thing. I think what Scream did was kind of go back a little bit farther and, try to make it as real as possible and that's where a lot of people like me we related to it because i was that kid who wandered around the the video store and stared at all the covers and you know picked out horror movies that was me so i I identified a lot with randy and all that stuff and just kind of how you have these conversations where you're like oh man i'd never do that or you're yelling at the movie while you're watching it i did all of that it struck (laughs) for sure that's awesome, man. I'm glad that you have such a personal connection to this that you can remember actually seeing it. That's really cool. I, I we are obviously, you know, Austin and I were you know, one years old when it came out, so we didn't get to have that. Um, how did you discover Scream, Austin? Uh, yeah, in middle school years. Um, I think you know when you're you're trying to find things and you're trying to trying to explore that that side of things, being scared. And I think Scream, uh, first off, the title is genius. The posters are all fantastic. Uh, I think it has a really effective score, really effective opening credits. All these things come into play. And so when you're in middle school, that movie just kind of sweeps you off your feet and uh, immediately becomes something that you're, I got to share this with my friends. I got to have these conversations. And I think that's a great point Josh brought up. That relatability you have with Randy when he's, uh, specifically when he's talking about the rules and breaking the rules of, of, of horror, that is just, you know, that's, that's like our, that's our DNA. That's our bloodline. We love that stuff so much. And uh, it, Scream has, an, I, I think, Connor, you put it perfectly, it's one of the most impactful um, horror movies in our genre, you know, of all time. It's not one of my favorites, but it's definitely one of the most important. Yeah. I, uh, it's funny. I, this was one of the first, or, uh, one of the last horror movies I saw. It's one of the last movies I watched before I moved from Maryland to Texas. Uh, I was I I was still doing Netflix through the mail. It was my primary source of watching movies because all of our movies were packed up. And uh, I discovered the Scream franchise because I was starting to search into more horror films. I was just starting to get into that. And I was the last one of my friends to, to learn about Scream. So I didn't really get to, like, you know, introduce it to anybody. I dressed up as Ghostface my last Halloween in, uh, in Maryland. And... It was new to me, so I didn't give a shit. <laughs> I was excited about it. I'm like, I have this new thing, and it's mine now. So I, I embraced it, and uh, yeah, I just I've always liked these movies. I just I find them funny and charming, and the kills are always pretty inventive and oddly satisfying a lot of the time. <laughs> and um, yeah, I think it's just a fun film, and uh, I think it's a good one for us to do together. So, Scream was directed by the late, great Wes Craven, director of such horror classics as A Nightmare on Elm Street, The Last House on the Left, The Hills Have Eyes, Red Eye, The People Under the Stairs, and past episode topic, The Serpent and the Rainbow. I've never actually seen People Under the Stairs. I really want to. I've heard it's goofy as fuck. It's goofy, but okay. So it's one of these movies, again, where the, the box art, kind of is a little misleading because it's it's scary and terrifying but the box art is way scarier than anything that happens in there it's really just kind of this weird 
fucked up movie where it, it, it like with like with Scream, like Wes Craven is always trying to, you know, talk about things more so than, you know, kind of like other directors where it's more just kind of about, you know, the, the kills or, or that kind of thing. Um, that, that movie had a lot to do with like gentrification and things like that. And at the, at the heart of it, you have, um, this brother and sister who have a very strange relationship. Um, and they literally have all of these children that they've kidnapped that live within their house and it's just it's it's absurd it's crazy um i'm trying to think of his name he was in twin peaks um he was ed the gas station everett mcgill or something like that yeah yeah everett mcgill yeah yeah big ed yeah okay so yes yeah yeah yeah. i I love big ed fucking love big ed and it's it's one of the most bizarre like reveals of a personality in a you know in a movie any movie period like he's straight up at the at the finale of it when things are breaking down he's in a gimp suit hunting down this kid yeah just the most bonkers thing you've ever seen fuck my god oh, we gotta add it. that to the schedule i gotta yeah we gotta do that holy please shit. yes please <laughs> yeah 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 Wes craven is one of the most like he's one of the most unique and popular like horror filmmakers of all time he's listed among the greats as he should be and i i regret that i haven't watched nearly as much of his films as i should have i've never seen last house on the left i've never seen the hills have eyes shame on you i know i know oh god (laughs) i can't i can't with you guys sometimes we are learning as we go along this is a learning experience I don't want to be that guy that says, how could you? How could you? (laughs) All right. That's why I'm here. I'm here to be the voice of reason and the old man. (laughs) Damn kids. You don't know your history. (laughs) You damn kids. You're the, Uh, you're the horror guru. You're the guy who's seen everything. So show us the way. I try. I try. Well, look, <laughs> you guys are going to have to go down some very scary roads with me. I'm just I'm just warning you. Trust me, once we once we once we get in the Tromaville, you guys are probably going to regret ever having me around. I'm just putting that out there now. <laughs> I don't know. Well, we are going to do our best to not, you know, fuck ourselves up with this podcast, but we are going to explore as like the weirdest movies we can find and we will, yeah, we'll, we'll do our best. But we like, eventually we are going to do Last House on the Left on the show. It's just, you know, I've heard it's incredibly, you know, brutal and hard to get through. So I, it hasn't exactly been a priority of mine. Like, oh, let's sit down and watch this movie. I'll get the popcorn. It's Okay, I'll put it to you like this. It is one of those movies that, it, yes, it is very difficult to get through when the, the gnarly stuff hits at the same time somehow Wes Craven manages to make you laugh and it's it's very simple the way he does it um just music cues and things like that but like it's it 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 takes you like that moment where it's just like a release valve you're like oh my god I just saw some of the most terrible just like I, I feel dirty after watching this and then you're like oh my god why am I laughing right now 
but it works. It works. So brace yourself. I'll just put it like that. Craven was so, so good at that. Just showing you the most fucked up shit and then making you laugh. He did that in all of his films. He, he was so good at balancing horror and comedy, like better than I think any other filmmaker. And uh, yeah, it was such a shock when he died in uh, 2015, 76 years old uh, from brain cancer. But uh, his legacy and contribution to horror will live forever. He will never, ever be forgotten. Scream was written by Kevin Williamson, who would also write Scream 2, Scream 4, I Know What You Did Last Summer, and The Faculty, as well as create and develop the TV shows Dawson's Creek, The Following, and The Vampire Diaries, among others. Interesting that the same guy wrote Scream, I Know What You Did Last Summer, and The Faculty. He clearly Hmm. was a one-trick pony. (laughs) Hmm, I think he was onto something. (laughs) I also think that that was Hollywood you know, striking while the iron was hot and trying to get anything and everything they can out of this kind of movie. I mean, he laid, and once it was found out, it was very easy to try and replicate it, change it just enough. Um, I mean, I made a joke about it in a draft I was writing up for my review of Scream, where it became this joke, at least to me and like my friends when we were watching these movies as they came out, that the characters are supposed to be teenagers, but clearly the actors are in their early to mid twenties. And it, it was just the most hilarious thing I've ever seen. And not only that, Kevin Williamson with Dawson's Creek, there were actors from Dawson's Creek in these movies, Joshua Jackson's in screen two. Um, fucking, uh, there's just all kinds of different little tidbits in there. Um, just crazy. Just crazy that, this whole like bleeding through and everybody getting work off of it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. I, I think that's a great point that you said that Hollywood just kind of drained everything they could out of it. And they, they'll always do that. They'll always find when something's cool and new and, you know, get, you people get attached to it. They're, yeah. They're going to drain every cent they can out of it. And that can be obviously a good thing because it keeps movies going, keeps movie things moving and keeps us going to the theater, but it also can be bad because it contains the original product. But uh, in this case, scream still stands so strong. I haven't seen Dawson's Creek, but I imagine it's basically Scream without the murder. <laughs> no, no, no. It will make you want to murder. It is. Yeah, yes, 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 yes. It is full of pretentious douchebag kids who use, yes. you know, 50 cent words like disestablishmentarianism, trying to fucking be intelligent. And they're still just horny teenagers who are screwing each other and fighting about it. And it's the worst but i did get money off of it because i used to do extra work for him i used to skip school to go do extra work so you know hey who am i who, who am i to bite the hand that beats me <laughs> that's pretty sweet that's pretty sweet <laughs> oh boy I'm, one of my favorite gags in a scary movie which was the spoof that uh, what was it Scream screen. supposed to be called Scary Movie originally? Yeah, it was. That, that was uh, that, Williamson's original draft. That's what they called it while they were shooting it. Oh, okay. Wow. So it took even yeah into production. That's crazy. Yeah. And uh, there's, a, <laughs> there's a scene in that when uh, Bobby uh, goes into Cindy's window and like they're making out and the Dawson's Creek theme music starts playing. And then Dawson <laughs> shows up in the window and is like, what the hell? And then he looks around. And he's like, oh, wrong set. And he leaves. 
That movie's stupid <laughs> as hell, but I love that gag. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, boy. Scary movie. Ugh. Well, <laughs> Williamson was inspired to write Scream after watching a news story about real-life serial killer Danny Rowling, the Gainesville Ripper. Rowling murdered five students in Gainesville, Florida, over a span of four days in August 1990. When arrested, he confessed to raping several victims, committing an additional triple homicide in Shreveport, and trying to kill his own father. The total body count was eight. He was tried and convicted in 94, executed by lethal injection in 2006. But Williamson was kind of captivated and a little freaked out by this guy who was just murdering teenagers in, in Florida. So he put pen to paper and imagined a scenario in which a young woman was alone in a house and taunted by a killer over the phone, a killer who would break into the house and murder her. And this became the basis for what was then called Scary Movie. Williamson went to Palm Springs to hammer out his script, which he did, along with five-page outlines for two potential sequels. He went all in on this. He thought he'd have an easier time selling a franchise. And believe me, I've fucking tried. It is not easy to sell a franchise. <laughs> but he did it. Oh, no, no. Well, from what I heard Wes Craven say, that was the second script he had ever sold. So go figure. Um <laughs> I mean, I wrote an outline with Caleb that uh, that I sent to you, and that took us like six months, an entire deployment out at sea to get all of the nonsense I had in short stories, put it together, try and make some sense of it, and then get it out on paper and try to organize it. And I'm terrified now to like try and knock it into a screenplay because I'm just like, I have no idea how to start that thing. It's just, just waiting, just waiting. So I can only imagine, like, I, I get the, I get the impetus behind like wanting to have more because that's all I've ever heard. Um, I don't know if you guys listened to the movie crypt, but with uh, Adam green and Joe Lynch talking, they're always like, if you have one script, you need to have like four more or at least ideas, outlines. Yeah. It because you sell one thing. I'm like, well, what else you got? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And even if they don't want anything with it, you're right. They're going to they're going to ask you just to ask you. But <laughs> just give it give us as much content as you possibly can. And we'll take the little pieces we want out of it. You know, it's crazy. For sure. I've never I've tried a screenplay several times and I just I, that something about that format. I just I can't get into it. I can't tell the story the way I want to tell the story with that. So I've just stuck to novels and uh, standard like short stories and that's that's worked well for me and i i enjoy that realm but maybe one day I, i'll take a stab at it try it again but that's just never been my forte you know and i know my strengths when it comes to writing and screenplay is not one of them yeah it's a very it's a very weird thing to try and tackle because you are extremely limited in terms of exposition anything that you to like you that up what you're doing it's primarily dialogue and camera direction Exactly. So like I'm I'm very visual in my head. I see everything that I'm writing, and so a lot of it, and I, that might come from you know, consuming so many movies. I start to think about what this would look like, you know, if it would ever be on screen or if it's like playing out in front of me. So even though I've read some scripts and things like that, it's still very hard to divorce yourself from you know, keeping everything to like 
only the most essential elements to what yeah. you want on there. It's so tough. Yeah, I can't do that. I like to I like to take, you know, big paragraphs to describe things. And I love doing that and finding descriptive language, finding ways to make these people and places come to life. And yeah, speaking of actually, I've started working on a, a short story based on a nightmare I had two weeks ago. Let's hear it. Scared me more than I've ever been scared. Like I woke up in cold sweats, turning all the lights on, like unable to go back to sleep because I didn't want to see I didn't want to be in the dark. It was unbelievable. I've never been that scared in my life. So I immediately wrote that shit down. And now I'm four pages into this story <laughs> and it's going to be fucking weird. It's I've been looking for like, what is the scariest thing I can write? And I think I've found it. Very so, cool. I won't give That's details awesome. yet, but I once oh, okay. I get a draft, I'll send it to everybody for uh, uh, just to see what you guys think. But uh, I, I personally <laughs> love you, love your uh, your short story turbulence. I think that one's fantastic. Uh, thanks, man. I appreciate that. This one's called Wormwood, nice. and uh, it's gonna be freaking yeah. I'm excited. It's all I've been thinking about for the past like week and a half. <laughs> all right. Well, back to uh, back to Williamson. He uh, went to Palm Springs, wrote his script. Wrote some outlines for the sequels. The script was then bought by Dimension Films, which was owned by up-and-coming production moguls Bob and Harvey Weinstein. Woo! Mm, oh, yeah. They're big in this story. Wes Craven was approached to direct by Bob Weinstein, who knew that Craven was a master at bringing horror and comedy to life together on screen. Craven had already been interested at, on this in, um, in this project and was actually trying to bid on the project himself. So it worked out. He, you know, everybody got what they wanted. And ultimately, it was the Weinsteins who changed the movie's title to Scream, which Williamson and Craven were against until, you know, they realized much better title than Scary Movie. Do you know he passed on this? Craven? One. Yeah. Yeah, he read – he said somebody told him to read the script, and he was like, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not into it right now. And at the time – he was really trying to get out of like just being shoehorned into doing horror. He always wanted to branch out and be, um, you know, a, a more like well-rounded filmmaker and not just be the horror guy, even though it's a genre that has been, you know, the, his legacy, yeah. but he, he read it and he came around again. It came back around and he was like, okay, yeah. Like he drew Barrymore at that point was already attached to it before he was even on there. So, yeah, he initially passed on it. Think about that. Nobody else, I don't think any other director could have pulled this movie off the way it came, with, um, you know, unless it was Wes Craven. Yeah, it would have been too serious, or it would have been too campy. Wes had that perfect middle. And there's only two constants that I know. Michael Jordan's not a baseball player, and Wes Craven does not make dramatic movies. He makes horror movies. <laughs> <laughs> like you know yes yes play to your strengths <laughs> so let's get into the cast nev campbell was cast as sydney prescott campbell at the time was a lead on the tv series party of five so she had busy days some of her work uh, some of her other work includes the craft wild things and a recurring role on house of cards but she'll always be Sydney Prescott, and I think she's accepted that. You know, if you're going to lead a franchise like this, that's who you're going to be forever. And 
if you can't accept that as an actor, it's just going to ruin your life. Yeah. And she's great. I think Nev Campbell does a great job in all of them. She plays a very believable, like, you know, first victim and then, you know, kind of person who doesn't want to be a victim anymore. Like, she does a really good job. I think the thing that really, like, stands out about her performance in that first one is, like, you know, they they set up these rules. Everybody's kind of conscious of what they are in a way, you know, especially with the writing. But then the the tried and true tropes that we all know and love are, like, subverted you know she she gives it up towards the end of the movie and by that by that notion she should have died she doesn't she's always fought back she's always been you know an an aggressor an aggressive character you know from from then on she's always on the front foot always you know one or two steps ahead trying to do but oddly enough oddly enough when things start to turn around and the killer comes back after her, she keeps getting scared, which I, I, that, that might've been like the only thing that's going to really like, you've been through this so many times. You're not just like, eh, yeah, whatever, dude, let's go. Just come on. And I think you do start to see that, you do start to see that in the third and fourth yeah. movies where it's, you know, she's, she's way more proactive. Um, but yeah, it, it was all about subverting, tropes and expectations in the in the first one for sure i was actually gonna bring that up in the first two she very much is like you know oh god this killer's after me and my friends what am i gonna do three and four she's like fucking ghost face god damn it like i love that i love that she's now at that point where it's like laurie strode in halloween like come up come at me asshole let's see how it's gonna go i love that i wish there was you know i i would love to see more of that in horror more of where the victim becomes like this badass who's like you know fuck you you try it I love that. <laughs> just from just from being worn out, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think I think one of my favorite scenes from Scream is when uh, Josh, you're talking about how they're subverting those those tropes, and you, while you're listening to them talk about how they're not going to do it, they're kind of doing it. And she's on the phone, and she's like, "Oh, the oh, the girl always, you know, runs back inside when she just go outside out the front door, and she goes back inside." <laughs> and so it's just this this genius way of, of filmmaking, and you're. you're Wes, Wes Craven, from what I've seen of his, is you're just in such such fucking good hands where he understands everything that's happening in the movie, and that that feels really good. And you immediately feel that way uh, when Scream starts. It's awesome. Damn straight. Uh, Courtney Cox was cast as heartless, bitchy reporter Gail Weathers. Cox approached the production herself because she was interested in playing a character with an edge. At the time, Cox played Monica on the insanely popular sitcom Friends, which personally I've never really been a fan of. I'm a Seinfeld and Frasier guy myself. But uh, Cox does a great job as Gail. She's been in all four films. And uh, she doesn't learn a goddamn thing in four movies. She keeps making the same mistakes. But, you know, that's why we love her. Well, I mean, she's like she's like the Geraldo with tits in in the first one. She's yes. this annoying investigative journalist, all about sensationalism, very very lax on the facts, just doesn't care. Would you know, kick her own mom in the teeth just to get an exclusive. Yeah, and she she does you know have a little bit of a character turn. I think by the second movie, you're a little more sympathetic to her. You kind of like her. And by the third one, she is definitely like, okay, she's kind of 
she's she is part of the cast now like she is definitely like somebody you think of when you see these movies first one i hated the shit out of her yeah but there's only so many dewey riley i thought you were a good person speeches i can take (laughs) like how many times are they going to do that well but but if you think about it though that's that's very much real life too um yes yeah yeah so many times, you know, the the good guys finish last. And, you know, he, Dewey, it's so messed up in these movies. He's like, he's the fucking Terminator. Like, you keep stabbing him, you shoot him, like, whatever. And he just keeps coming back. Just keeps coming back. I haven't, I hadn't seen Scream 3 since it came out. And I was watching it with my wife, Jamie. They're sitting there and, you know, Dewey's getting it. And he falls and she's like, no, Dewey, I love him so much. I'm like, he'll be fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> like, don't worry about it. He's good. Sure as shit. You know, the, the end of the round and you, and you hear Dewey, Dewey's theme, as it's called, the, the little doom, 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 doom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking Dewey. Oh, God. <laughs> can't stop. You can't, you can't keep Dewey down. So why wouldn't he be back for the fifth one? Yeah, exactly. I, I hope they kill him in part five. I hope they kill him like for good. Oh, it's the killer. They could do that. There's that theory that Dewey's been like the secret mastermind behind the whole ghost face killings. Why? Who the fuck knows? But <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. Maybe he was in love with Sydney's mom or something. No, he's got a huge bone for Sydney. Huge bone. He um, I don't know. Do you do you think there's some cre- like some credence to that that he is the mastermind behind the killings in all four movies that he was like manipulating everything? No, no. I mean yeah. he does he does he does give that line. Um, I think it's in it's in the second one I think when he was talking to Gail. Yeah. He was talking about well maybe I was just subverting your expectations so I could get closer and get all the information I need. Blah blah blah. Oh, so you're just playing stupid? You're not really stupid? No, dude, you get off a very Barney Fife vibe. Sorry, he's hurt. <laughs> oh boy, I get more of a Gomer Pyle vibe myself. On him. <laughs> well, Gad Zook, Sid. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> Skeet Ulrich was cast as Billy Loomis. Sydney Skeet. Fucking Skeet. I can't, I can't handle this guy. I can't handle Skeet. <laughs> Ulrich had already worked with Campbell before in The Craft, and he was cast mainly because he gave off a young Johnny Depp vibe. The producers were like, you know, Johnny Depp, Elm Street, that's what we want. <laughs> and they got Skeet. <laughs> like, diet Johnny Depp with lime. <laughs> yeah, so how can we how can you take him seriously when you call yourself Skeet? Yeah, that's not his first name. That's his stage name. Yeah, exactly. He chose <laughs> that shit. I'm yeah. just kidding. But still, you like who? Hey, I'm Scoot. No, dude, nobody's gonna drop their panties for that. I'm a 32 year old <laughs> high school senior. Like fucking asshole. <laughs> All I wear is Haynes undershirts. That's it. <laughs> God, I hate, I hate Skeet. Yeah, he's terrible. I'm so glad he was the killer because. We needed to see him die, and I wanted to see it done painfully. And I think we got it. 
fucking skeet. His uh his career as a leading man never really took off, understandably so. But now he yeah. can be seen on CW's Riverdale as <laughs> FP Jones. I hope he's not still playing a high schooler. That would be weird. <laughs> right, would you be surprised oh, though? It's to be like Jughead's dad or some shit. Probably. I I don't I don't want to watch Riverdale. I never thought the Archie comics needed an edge. So I don't give a fuck about Riverdale. I don't know why this show is popular. It's such a weird idea. But Skeet is, you know, he got he's getting paid, so good for him. David Arquette was cast as Officer Dewey Riley. Arquette was approached for the role of Billy, but he asked to read for Dewey instead because he wanted to play this kind of goofy cop. And Craven liked Arquette's kind of softer approach to the role, and he cast him. Originally, Dewey was supposed to be this, like, hunky cop, but Arquette showed up, and he's very much not a hunky cop. Like, you know, like you said, he's Barney Fife. <laughs> and he works like that. You need this kind of, like, dopey local law. He's a good counterbalance to everything that's going on. Oh, I mean, and he's, like, he's the older brother. So, I yeah. mean, he's definitely, like, very close to Sydney and all of the other high schoolers and stuff. He's probably only, you know, what, supposed to be, like, maybe, like, five years older than all of them there or whatever. Um so, yeah, I mean, he's definitely, like, as the character works, it's great because nobody takes him seriously. I mean, his sister, Rose McGowan's character, um, Tatum, she she totally, like, makes fun of him all the time. And, you know, you never take him seriously, but yet there he is every time, like, trying to save the day. Emphasis on trying. <laughs> True. True. He gets stabbed to death more than anybody in this franchise. It's pretty amazing. I wish I had. Do you guys notice that between Scream 2 and 3, the nerve damage is completely gone? (laughs) Did that bother you? Because it really bothered me. (laughs) It didn't bother me. Like, just one of the scenes, like, huh, he got over that pretty fast. (laughs) Well, like, Scream 2, he's like, he can't move his hand, his arm, he's like holding it up like this. Scream 3, he's holding the gun. Like what the fuck? That's that's pretty serious nerve damage. I mean, I mean, his limp let him down in Scream Two because it was because of his limp that he fell down the auditorium steps trying to run away. Like, true, but, yeah, but it's because it was, of that scar tissue that he survived that time. Oh, <laughs> oh my oh, god. Man. Arquette would uh, later marry his co-star, Courtney Cox, but they would divorce in 2013. She was Courtney Cox Arquette for the longest time. Arquette has appeared in a ton of stuff, but Scream will be what he's known for as well. Uh, Off the top of my head, uh, Riding the Bullet comes to mind. Uh, Great movie. Yeah, I I thought it was all right. I'm, uh, I don't know. I never really liked that story to begin with. See, I've I've never actually read the story, but like I've heard... Um, Mick Garris talk about it and yeah. for him it was one of these like very personal stories for him yeah. and it like it just it, it, it came at the right time where he was going through something emotional and personal in his life I think he lost his brother and so he kind of used that in the writing of the script for it so like if they're just this really personal thing with it so when you like when you watch it in that context if you get that context with it it makes it a lot easier to digest than going straight from the page to the screen. You're like, what the fuck am I watching? Yeah. 
that's a see that's when it comes to King, my process is is read the book, watch the movie. So it's really tough for me to take to, like consider the movie in any other context. But sure. with that in mind, I, I'll give writing the bullet another shot. Think about yeah, it. Try yeah. to think about it like that. And and listen to Mick like Mick Garris. I could listen to that guy talk all day long about film and writing and things like that. And he's he's just he's amazing. And I think the way he manages to weave horror into his films and how he does things you start to understand like why he's been able to work with Stephen King's material so much. And he's done such a fantastic job with, you know, almost everything, you know, like the, the marketing for writing the bullet really killed it too. Cause the studio wasn't sure how to like promote the movie. They did a shitty trailer for it, like all this other stuff that let it down. And so that's one of the things about movie making and stuff that fascinates me. It's like these little stories behind things yeah. and get you get a little more context to something. It, it, it allows you to kind of like digest it in another way. True. Very true. I've had that happen before where I've had my mind completely changed about a movie just by, you know, kind of giving it a, a different context. And uh, context is important, not just for the film, but for the film viewing experience. Like Scream, for instance, you know, you got to be in a certain mindset and you got to be a fan. Like, I think if you're not a fan of horror, you're not going to appreciate Scream nearly as much as somebody like us. Okay, a- uh, uh, let me let me point something out real quick about that, though, because uh, yeah. I I am I am much newer. Uh, you know, I'm only 25 years old. and I, I even even being that young, I'm still really young in the horror uh, researching and, you know, finding out about the greats, especially, you know, the American greats uh, of, of our, our, our wonderful genre. Um, Scream did impact me very much at a young age when I didn't know what Halloween was in middle school. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, I think the reason Scream is impactful for, for anyone is because, because of the cast. Um, and then it, it actually, the kills are actually pretty fucking scary. They're pretty brutal. Um, the, the garage door openings, I remember, I remember that, you know, when Tatum dies, you just, that, that's like changed me as a middle schooler because I didn't know what any of that was. So I think you can look at it as, oh, this is like, this movie is for horror fans because it, it calls out to so many things that, you know, it, it, it respects the slasher genre. It respects, you know, how the 90s just didn't have a lot to offer for horror, especially in the middle and late 90s. But for me, when I first saw it, it didn't really matter because it was so entertaining. And it was funny and it was scary. So if you knock out those three boxes, you're going to entertain anybody who it doesn't matter if they uh, know what the reference are references are or not. But I do think it, it enhances the, the experience. If you are a horror fan, uh, especially in hindsight. Now, if you watch it now at the age we are, I mean, you're just laughing your ass off at Randy because he's in the video store, like going off about all these movies. And you're like, Oh yeah, I know what that is. You know, I know exactly what he's talking about, but um, I, I don't think you necessarily need that. That's how good Scream is. Like that's how yeah. it kind of it kind of breaks that barrier. If you know what I mean. Well, I just meant mainly that like anybody can be entertained by it, but a whole like a horror fan will find like different things to be like yes. excited about. That that's more what I meant. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, of course, you get like you get the layers to it. So like for yes. like 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 the way Austin pointed it, on the face of it, it's a great slasher, you know, whodunit type hybrid where it is effective from start to finish. Um, and then when you start to dig into it deeper, you have all the horror movie references, the character names, Billy Loomis, 
Yes. Yes. You know, um, all of these other things. Um, and then even deeper with like, you know, characters that are cast against type, you have Henry Winkler playing the principal and like the way he is totally not the Fonzie. He's this total dork of a principal who tries to be hard and take control of the situation but he's just meat for the grinder, you know, like he's totally disposable, just like Drew Barrymore. Her whole death is, has this, you know, is very reminiscent of Psycho. Everybody yes. saw Barrymore on the poster and then she's gone in the first 15 minutes of the movie. Yes. Yeah. So impactful. Yeah. That's a great point. The Drew Barrymore thing. Yeah. I, I mean, that was, that was a key, key way of like they were marketing drew barrymore <laughs> and yet for her it's very very reminiscent of psycho but i wouldn't have known that because i didn't see psycho until i was you know maybe 16 or 17 but i saw scream when i was about 13 so it's just different you know yeah 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 that's what i'm saying there's just so many levels to it like you were yeah like, off with austin it, it, it really is it's so cool because horror can that like it meets you where you are you know what i mean it's awesome Fantastic. Yeah, we'll get more into that once we get into the plot, for sure. Yes, yeah, for sure. Uh, next up, we got Matthew Lillard as Stu, the clown of the group, and definitely the craziest. Lillard is known more these days for playing Shaggy in the live-action Scooby-Doo movies, and he also had a minor but significant role in the Twin Peaks revival. Lillard is a interesting actor. He's uh, He can do a lot. I don't think he's ever really gotten credit for his performances, and he's fucking great in Scream. <laughs> very much so i actually the first time i saw him in a movie was slc punk wow nice <laughs> nice yeah i saw him in that and it was one of these things like i was getting into punk rock and it was like you have to watch this movie yes. if you want this to be you know your life like this has to, you know see if this speaks to you it did it fucking hit all the right notes and even looking back on it now, there are some very, very sobering truths to that lifestyle and you know, whether, you know, you make it out on the other side and you come to find out that, you know, it, it's not all about this fucking fashion parade that punk rock can be. It's more the ideals and what you carry with you and who you are. And that movie taught me a lot at, an, at a point where I needed to have that kind of like identity things. Matthew Lillard is an amazing actor for having that kind of range and to be able to go pretty much all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. I echo that for sure. Uh, SLC punk, uh, twin peaks scream. And then, um, and those are like staples, like you said, like in someone like uh, for us as viewers, those are staples in our lives. But, uh, I think he, like one of my favorite performances of Matthew Lillard is uh, 2011's the descendants when he goes, he goes toe to toe with George Clooney in a couple scenes that I, I just didn't know he had it in him. So, I, yeah, he's amazing in that movie as well. <laughs> I I've not, I haven't seen either of those movies. <laughs> I got nothing. Uh, you, you, shaggy, baby. Shaggy. Sh he's shaggy to me. Yeah, With, that's mine. Uh, without a Paddle? <laughs> never seen that. Uh, without oh, a Paddle's not good, very though. good, but, yeah, it's great. You know, like, it's great for its own reasons, yeah. Exactly, exactly. It's, it's, it's fucking funny. Yes, yeah. Not obviously, but, you know, you get what you pay for. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. That one's been on my list for a very long time without a pattern. Yeah, it's it's your it's your kind of comedy, Connor, for sure. <laughs> you would love it, man. Yeah. Speaking of comedy, comedian Jamie Kennedy was cast as Randy, the horror movie geek. Randy's rules of survival are pop culture famous now. 
Kennedy has also appeared in such films as Malibu's Most Wanted, Enemy of the State, Three Kings, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, and Son of the Mask, which he should have been kicked out of Hollywood forever for, and I think he was. Uh, I've always found him to be kind of an annoying douchebag, but I like him in Scream. Streets of Malibu. (laughs) (laughs) I saw the Netflix trailer for that, and I'm like, no. (laughs) Not a chance. Bill Bill Gluckman's down with the bitches and hoes. (laughs) (laughs) I love that movie. I think it's hilarious. There's not enough. There's not enough weed in the world without making me watch that again. <laughs> uh, there's, there, yeah, you, you don't need much for me to watch that. <laughs> Have you guys ever seen clips from the Jamie Kennedy show? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Travesty. Yeah. Oh, my God. The most awkward shit I've ever seen. Just, like, berating the audience. Like, the guy has no fucking clue how to be funny. <laughs> No, no, he he is so strange, and he like really needs a movie that understands stuff like Scream and a character so specific like Randy for him to work for me. Yeah, that's just how I feel about him. Yeah, for sure. I honestly, I can I can do without him. I don't need him again. I'm good. With Scream is my Jamie Kennedy a lot. Yeah, I don't need you, you you absolutely need Randy though. You need him in these you movies. Do need, you, you he's great. To. He's a great character in this movie. He's maybe the greatest character, just for the being the guy who knows what's up. And yeah, I love relatability. That. Yeah, I mean when he when he gets up in front of all those people at the house and pauses the movie to explain the rules is like, yeah, the audacity. I love it. For sure. Rose McGowan was cast as Tatum, Sydney's best friend. McGowan would go on to appear in the TV series Charmed, as well as become Robert Rodriguez's leading lady for a while, starring in Planet Terror. She would also become one of the most outspoken voices against misogyny in Hollywood due to an event that happened on the the production side of this movie. We'll get more into that later. Finally, we've got Drew Barrymore in her brief role as Casey, the second victim. Barrymore is the biggest star attached to the film. She approached the production herself, originally signed on to play Sydney, but when unexpected commitments elsewhere arose, she accepted the role of Casey, the character who was killed at the beginning to prove just how serious the situation is. And having a big-name actress killed in the first act set the tone for the whole movie. Suddenly, nobody was safe. Anything goes. Brilliant. And like Josh said, very much like Psycho. Mm-hmm. And uh, clearly, you know, that's Craven paying homage. And it really works. Even if you know it's going to happen, it really still works. That's what I still love. Still does. About, yeah. That's what I love most about the Scream franchise is even if you know who the killer is, it's still fun. It's still fun to watch. Yes. Yes. The journey. The journey is what it's all about. It's not about the destination of Scream. It's the the space between the notes is so good at this movie because it's constantly paying attention to itself. It's awesome. And actually, when I was watching Scream Two, I had forgotten who the killer was. So I got to have like a. We experience on that one, which is nice. Um, Yeah. Scream has an IMDb score of 7.2. Rotten Tomatoes score of 79%. It was a massive hit, grossing $173 million on a budget of $14 million. Wow. It spawned three sequels to date, as well as a TV series reboot. So it's become one of the most profitable horror franchises in uh, recent years. Yeah, okay, what, what, have y'all seen any of that, that MTV nonsense? What is that? <laughs> oh, no. 
no. What 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 is that? Who who got that? Who has the rights to that? Like what? How did they get to do that show? Uh, I think Kevin Williamson signed over the rights to MTV for a TV series, and uh, they rebooted it with a new Ghostface. It's like an anthology yeah. season series, and it got kind of mixed reviews. It's got its fans, but I'm never gonna fucking check that out. That is more for a generation who never had any like experience with the franchise because it came out and I mean, it came and went for me because I didn't even pay attention to it. The best the best thing I can tell you recommendation wise is watch. It's on Netflix should still be on there. It's called Slasher, oddly enough. And it's an anthology series where each season is a different story and it's way better than whatever that scream nonsense was. I'm, I'm not even going to waste my time and watch it. Slasher was pretty cool. Um, it's got some, it's got some different uh, ideas that it's playing. The third one is probably the most bananas one. Um, it just continually builds on itself. It all, it's super gory. So like you kind of get, you know, everybody gets a little bit in there, you know, the gore hounds get something, people who want something fresh, in a way you get that. And yeah, I, I, I don't know for, for me, like the, the, the whole franchise itself, the, the idea only has so much mileage before it just starts to, you know, step on its own toes and stop. I mean, that's how I felt by the fourth one. I was just like, all right, I get it. And while, yeah, they were, they did have some good ideas. It just wasn't, the same for me. Fair enough. Slasher. I'll write that down. I'll check that out. Yeah, I was gonna say I'm not. I'm not a big, uh, big like. I don't commit to a lot of TV shows, but that sounds really cool. Um, like you said, you said it's an anthology where it's a different like killer each season. Yeah, it's a, it's a whole it's a whole other story and oh wow, like that's with, really cool. And with with most like really good like indie productions and stuff, they use a lot of the. There are a lot of the same actors will come up, but oh, they're playing characters, different types and all of that stuff. Like the first season is just a straight up revenge revenge movie with a, with a mass killer. And the second one is a revenge story that has like a summer camp twist on it. Um, yeah, it's just it's so good. It's so good. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely have to try to check that out, Connor. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'll put it on the list. The ever growing list. <laughs> Ugh. So let's start on the plot of this thing. Let's do it. So the film opens with Casey Becker receiving phone calls from some guy. And instead of just kind of hanging up and calling the police, she keeps engaging this guy. And at, like the guy who's asking, you know, like, so what are you doing? And she's like, just making popcorn. Going to watch a scary movie. And he's like, oh, you like scary movies. Huh? What's your favorite scary movie? And they're just talking about, like, he shouldn't know who the fuck this is, but she's just talking to the guy. <laughs> and, uh, she says her favorite scary movie is uh, Halloween. And, uh, yeah, I get that. Great movie. And uh, eventually she asks the you know appropriate question, like, why do you want to know my name? And he says one of the creepiest lines in horror movie history, I think, because I want to know who I'm looking at. Oh, Ooh. yeah. <laughs> and, and. I think I think it's it's one of these things like you, you get the audience engaged with this because when I was watching it with my wife, you know, her and I are watching it and she's going, why doesn't she call the police right now? What the fuck is her problem? She needs to call, hang up on 
hang up, call the cops, hang up. And, you know, when she blocks the doors and like, I will just run, just run, bitch, run. It, mm. it really gets involved right from the beginning. If that guy was calling me, he would have fallen asleep asking me questions. And I just would have kept answering him. I really do. <laughs> Do you want to go through the whole plot of Halloween, sir? Because I can't. <laughs> no, no. Let me tell you what the true continuity is, sir. Like, just go. Yeah, I can totally see that happening. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, it, it's like it's like someone robbing SpongeBob, and they're like, "Oh shit, never mind." <laughs> yeah. The wrong house. Yep. <laughs> But he's uh, he's pretty insistent, and she hangs up on him, and then he calls her back and is like, don't you do that again, or I will, like, I'm going to gut you like a fish. And it turns from uh, playful to serious really fast. And she says, like, my boyfriend's going to kick your ass. He's, he plays football, and he, he'll, he'll destroy you. And she's like, um, the guy's like, look out back. And Steve's tied up in the backyard. Like, shit. <laughs> Steve, Oh, yeah, of course, because, you know, he's a jock. Of course, he's going to have that shit. But like anytime I watch that again and I hear her say that, I don't hear her say that. I hear Carmen Electra in Scary Movie. My boyfriend's black and he'll kick your ass. I'm just like, oh, (laughs) fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Me too, man. Like that movie has has kind of it's ruined a little bit of Scream. Because I do hear them saying these lines sometimes, which fucking sucks. But it takes all the fr- all the scares out of it. But it's it's funny. God damn it. That's what you get when you watch too many movies, man. I watched Scary Movie two recently, and that was so that's, that's pretty bad. I love Scary Movie three. That's one of my favorites. It's something about the Zuckers. It's like what they can do with slapstick is so fucking great. And I love Leslie Nielsen as this idiot president. The whole eight miles shit, like that was yeah. Scary Movie Three is fucking hilarious. <laughs> I'll stand by that. It might have been all drugs I've done in my, in college. I don't even remember watching that. <laughs> they do like <laughs> signs in the ring. One of the big one of the big ones. Uh, so, uh, Steve, uh, the killer gives Casey an ultimatum. Says like. I'm going to give you some movie trivia. If you get it right, I won't kill Steve. And Casey's like, ah, all right. He's like, who was the killer in Friday the 13th? And she's like, it was Jason. He's like, nope. She's like, yes, it was. I saw that movie a hundred times. And he's like, well, you would know it was Jason's mom. Like, Jesus, I kind of get it, you know? (laughs) I'd be frustrated about that, too. (laughs) Mrs. Voorhees. But, yeah. Straight up kill Steve. Yeah, yeah. Which, which is, again, like we can say it over and over, but the the intro to this movie is so fucking impactful and uh, reminds you that no, this is not a joke. This is gonna be brutal. Oh yeah. And uh, <laughs> he's throwing, you know, he throws a chair through the back window after like tri- quizzing her, "What door am I at?" She takes off running, and then he breaks into the house, and it's this guy in a ghost face mask. Immediately iconic. Straight up. And she's just this guy chases Casey across the yard, stabs her in the throat right when her parents uh, show up. 
And it's so sad to watch her try to scream for help, but she can't because her fucking vocal cords are shot. (laughs) And he just picks her up and carves her, carves her up. And mom and dad find her hanging from a tree, her guts ripped open. Scream! (laughs) Yeah, that opening sequence is unbelievable. Yeah, it really is. And um, uh, Josh, is uh, Wes Craven, is that what he, because I also haven't seen everything he's done. Does he always open his movies like that with just a fucking bang? No, no. I mean, Serpent in the Rainbow, if I remember. Yeah, that's, really... I, I, I've just seen that one and uh, First Nightmare on Elm Street. That's really it. That I've really watched all the way through. Um, trying to think, because New Nightmare was, uh, it, 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 it's, it's a different movie. So it's not really like, you know, like he's kind of playing in, in disregard. Because I mm-hmm. think if I'm correct, like new nightmare opens and you don't realize it but when the reveal is made it's actually like they're making another movie about freddy and okay so okay has this weird little game with you um where you're not sure um last house on the left um it starts off kind of you know um like most movies in the 70s it's just you know like these two carefree kids these yeah. girls are <laughs> Going to the city, we're going to go to a concert, and we're going to go smoke some grass, man, it'll be cool. And, yeah, they wander into the wrong house, and they're, you know, they're screwed. But, um, yeah, I think I think the thing that he really does well, which reminds me a lot of Hitchcock, is he takes the idea of, you know, the safety in suburbia and kind of shows that, you know, there, there is this darker side to it or that, you know, you're, you're not as safe as you think you are in a neighborhood where everybody knows everybody. Because do you really know who your neighbors are? Do you know who this kid you've played with, you know, your whole life? Do you really know everything you know about him? Um, which kind of plays into the way the, the, the film evolves and everything starts coming out. There's always these dirty secrets in, you know, the cookie cutter white picket fence neighborhoods. David Lynch plays with those ideas, too. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I really thought about Scream in that in that way, which is something I love about movies because I, I grew up in a more su- suburban area, but I definitely felt at times uh, that it was like e- very eerie, you know, because um, it is like, oh, it's all good. We all it's all fine. It's all quiet. But it's like, no, you know, every every human has that, you know, has that shit in their closet, you know, um, that you, you don't want to fuck with. Yeah, I, I, I've always loved. Obviously, David Lynch is one of my favorite guys to do it. I've always loved the idea of um, messing with that. And then Connor and I, we, we actually discussed a movie that's much different than this, but The Burbs from, you know, 1989, where it really dives into that and, and is really making fun of it. It's really, I, I love that idea. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. fucking yeah. hate Suburbia. Suburbia scares the shit out of me, man. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. I grew up in the mountains. Like, I didn't have neighbors. I had, you know, woods. <laughs> so, woods. I yeah, the very idea of having neighbors that are that close to you. No, Mm-mm, I don't like that. You didn't grow up with friends. You made your own friends, didn't you, Connor? Yeah. With, I had, with stick, stick figures? I had a rock yeah. statue in my <laughs> front yard. Yeah, I named him Bill, and we hung out for a <laughs> oh, while. Oh, serious. A particular <laughs> bad thunderstorm knocked him over. <laughs> I, had some, I had friends, but it was just a mountain town in Maryland is not exactly, you know, there's slim pickings up there. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I had a few friends, but they lived in the neighboring town of Smithsburg, so I didn't have anybody to hang out with like 
outside of school because it was we were right next to a uh, a defunct military base where like it was completely empty. It's now like a they revamped it into like a community center. I looked it up recently, but when I lived there, it was completely empty, and it was like me, and then like two miles down the road was another house we didn't know, and then five miles down there, some other house. It was just miles of woods as far as the eye could see. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm just, you know, I'm kind of opposed to suburbia because that's just the way I grew up. Uh, I, actually, well, I think what I really like about this opener is the way it completely obliterates star power. Like, that doesn't exist in this movie. Like, typically in a horror movie, you know, the big name actor is going to be fine at least until the end of the movie. In this case fucking gone in 10 minutes it could be anybody who gets the axe next and i like that yeah well, well I, yeah yeah that's, thing, that's the, yeah go, go ahead josh because yeah i think we all have i think we all love that part of this movie so i think the thing that that sets up and then you know it, it kind of becomes a joke in and of itself is is the amount of names that are in these movies you know later on in, in the subsequent uh sequels you know they're just jam-packed with with stars all over the place um and so you know like it 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 becomes this thing where yeah there are all these noticeable faces and things like that and then it just becomes this this question of when not who necessarily but when when it when are one of these fuckers going to die because it's gonna happen you just yes. don't know because there's so many faces that you know can identify with that it's just a matter of when the biggest shock, of course, was, you know, Drew Barrymore getting it right in the beginning. Yeah, in Scream great, 2, great point. In Scream 2, I was really bummed that Sarah Michelle Gellar got killed off so unceremoniously because of how strong a character she was playing. You know, Buffy at the time is this strong, you know, independent, you know, warrior. And then in Scream 2, she's just like, you know, hell base cheerleader. And I, I think it kind of took a little bit away from that. But, but that's exactly why. That's exactly why she got it. Think about yes, it. Yes, yes. She gets typecast, like, revert. It's like reverse typecast. Yeah, so cool. Yep. That's true. That's a good point. Still, to see Buffy get thrown off I, the fucking building. I, I, know, I know you feel, a, like, a personal connection to that show, yeah. <laughs> Very true. I'm a huge Buffy and Angel fan. I've, I love yeah. those shows. But, you know, more on that later. <laughs> <laughs> so... Casey's dead, and word gets around town really fast. But yes. before that, we meet Sydney and her boyfriend, Billy, who sneaks into her bedroom window. And his reasoning is, it just occurred to me, I've never sneaked into your bedroom window before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this this is uh, right away, you're like, all right, Skeet's not a good actor. He's not, he's not convincing me. And he, the way he's talking is, man, I want to punch this guy in the face. He's like, well, like, you know, we've been together for a couple years. We need to spice things up, like the fuck is wrong with this guy man <laughs> later on when he's like look your mom's been dead for a year can we just have oh sex already god i fucking my... hate that part <laughs> hate that part jesus god. could you get a flag redder than that oh my god dude creeping in your window is the is the worst is the worst yes. red flag right there yeah come on i, I wonder his, come his, back his reasoning's like ass. well i never done this before so here we are yeah, I, w I wanted the adrenaline rush. Like, what? Yeah, get the hell out of here, man. 
I've been so dying to dry hump you. Can you do that? <laughs> yeah. I was I was thinking we could do some over the clothes stuff. Like, God, go home. I was watching Roger. The Exorcist and it made me want to fuck you. Like, what the? <laughs> That's the weirdest come on I've ever heard in my life. Red flag. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh, man. <laughs> so she's, uh, when she sees Billy the first time, she screams and then her dad comes to check on her. And that reminded me of Scary Movie when it's uh, Rick Dukeman who's like, I thought I heard screaming. And she's like, no, you didn't. And he's like, well, it could have been that crack I smoked earlier, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what it was. I fucking love Rick Dukeman. I wish he did more. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I just keep seeing bits from Scary Movie just like Josh. It's fucking hilarious. But Sydney's a virgin. She doesn't know. She wants to, you know, she's not ready. Billy tries to kind of get in there, and uh, she says no. <laughs> There's no other way to put it, because uh, Billy's not even trying to beat around the bush. He's just like, you know, no, I'm, just, I'm, just, yeah. I'm just a fucking dude. Yeah. <laughs> There's no seduction here. It's like he, he falls on her. It's ridiculous. Yes. And he looks like he's 35. It's I can't get over that. He does not look anything like a high school. He looks like he broke out of the prison down the road. Like I, can't, I just can't get over that shit. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> she uh, he says oh, like I'm only half serious. I wouldn't rush you into anything. Like, come on, man. At least stand by your like fucked up traits. And. Um, she says if uh, she asks if he'll settle for PG-13 and she like flashes him off camera and he's like, whoa, like he has this reaction of like, wow, <laughs> like he's never seen tits before. Dude, fucking relax. Yeah, right. Like, we know that that guy has been hunting, you know, like watching Skinamax and making sure <laughs> just the right time. Like, that's exactly, that's exactly the kind of guy he is. We yeah, all know. Because, because at some point we were Billy, we were hungry for it. The only thing we didn't do was act on it and drive it to the leg like a horned dog. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Billy, Billy's arrogance and confidence to actually do these things is, is appalling. Okay, so that's another thing about like where the reality of this movie kind of comes into the, 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 the movie is like, we know people like you've seen guys like this. You've heard stories about guys like this guys who just stand there with a boner, just like going, look, do you see, am I supposed to go home with this? What do you want me to do with that? <laughs> but, <laughs> he's handsome. He's handsome. Look, I knew plenty of girls that watched this movie. I was like, oh my god, he's so hot. I'd let him snake in my room. Yeah, right. And then you're gonna be pregnant. Like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, by a 35 year old guy. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. At least you know you're gonna push security soon. <laughs> Oi. So. The next day, we learn that a year prior to this, Sydney's mother was murdered. 
And the guy who's uh, been put away for it, a guy named Cotton Weary, played by Liev Schreiber in a cameo that gets extended into part two and three. Maybe my favorite like little bit about that movie, like that Liev Schreiber did just one little scene in this, knowing the potential of the character down the road. That's so cool. It's like really shows you how much they, of this they had planned as a franchise. And uh, Sydney's testimony is what put Cotton Weary in prison. But Gail Weathers, the uh, the reporter, wrote a book proclaiming Cotton's innocence, and Cotton says he's innocent. Basically, she called Sydney a lying hoe in so many words. So she and Gail have a beef before the movie even starts. Next day, the school is abuzz with the murder, and everyone's like, whoa, what happened? And uh, classes get canceled temporarily, and uh, Sydney decides that, you know, since Dad's out of town and you know she's alone, she's going to stay with her best friend, Tatum. Sydney's uh, hanging out with her friends. We meet Randy, who's obsessed with horror movies. Stu, who's like this, you know, clown and uh, used to date Casey. He's dating Tatum now. He's going through this school like a case of herpes. And uh, Sydney goes home to wait for Tatum to pick her up. And the phone rings and she hears this voice, same one that was talking to Casey. And she says, like, you know, you're going to die just like your mother. And Sydney's like, oh, it's the guy. And the guy the killer comes out of the closet in Sydney's house and uh, starts chasing her, like kind of let's admit, like admittedly kind of half-assed through the house. Like it's not time yet <laughs> to kill case, to kill Sydney. She locks herself in her bedroom and dials 911 through the computer, which I didn't know you could do that back in 96. Neither did I. Like how is that faster? Well, I think they were taking advantage of the fledgling internet at the time. Um, I know that it didn't really work like that, as far as I knew, um, unless you were like an actual, like no shit computer programmer and could like actually code and make your computer work that way. Um, again, movies kind of playing fast and loose with real life or whatever. Um, you know, she as far as we know, doesn't really have a phone in her room. So, you know, it, it also, I think what it shows is that she's intelligent and she's resourceful and can think on her feet. You know, she has some psycho trying to kill her and she's successfully barricaded him out of her room and she knows how to alert the authorities. And that's the thing that she does. She doesn't try and fucking cry and trip and fall and all this stuff. So it kind of characterizes her. Like, yeah, it's really dumb. You're kind of like, how the fuck does she do? But nobody that sees that now is going, well, they didn't have that kind of technology in 1996. Me, I wasn't even thinking about that. I was like, man, this bitch is smart. <laughs> <laughs> I was just more surprised that, like, instead of, because like, she, she had the phone earlier. Like, why didn't she take that with her? I, I didn't know that you could even dial 911 through a computer it just seems so weird to me so i just i got focused on that <laughs> but uh billy arrives so much. <laughs> billy arrives climbing through sydney's window again it's his favorite hobby and a cell phone falls out of his pocket 
And at the time, this is very suspicious because we didn't all have cell phones in 96. It was a luxury. So for Billy to have one gives him a big old, you know, uh, target on his back for being the killer. And Sydney immediately is like, oh, my God, it was you. And Billy's like, whoa, I just got here. She runs downstairs, opens the door, and Dewey's holding the fucking mask like up to the door for some reason. <laughs> like, ah! Again. Da, 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 it's, do, it's Dewey. Pretty much. They arrest Billy. He gets questioned, and uh, Sydney doesn't stick up for him, which is immediately like, like, well, they must not have had a very tight relationship if Sydney's just like, yeah, I think it was him because he had a cell phone. <laughs> and uh dewey is tatum's older brother the town deputy who's kind of a adult kind of a i won't say a moron but definitely a little slow and uh outside the police station she gets confronted by gail weathers who as i said earlier has a beef with sydney or sydney has a beef with her she feels cotton weary was wrong wrongfully convicted and when she says to uh to Sydney, like, I'll send you a copy of my book. Sydney punches her right in the fucking jaw, and it's so satisfying. Gail gets punched by Sydney a lot in this franchise. <laughs> yeah, it's just a matter of, you know, how they how they go about it. I think they did it in the third one? In the second, or, I don't know, actually, no, Scream 2. Um, Gail's like, oh, no, 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 you can't punch me. And then she ends up getting backhanded. And she's like, ah, I didn't punch you. I just slapped you. What's the difference? <laughs> yeah. But she deserves it every time. Because she, you know, she she pushes. She prods. <coughs> and, uh, yeah, she's just insufferable. But she feels the murder of Casey Becker is connected to the murder of Sydney's mother. And uh, she thinks the caller is the same guy. Tatum takes Sydney back to her house. Tries to, you know, tell her, like, look, it's, everything's going to be fine. And she gets another phone call from the killer saying that they got the wrong guy again, <laughs> which makes, you know, brings up that Cotton Weary is probably innocent. Um, the next day at school, Sydney gets uh, attacked again by the killer in the bathroom, which I know I shouldn't be thinking about this, but I'm just thinking like the whole time in there, the killer's standing on a toilet, just kind of waiting. <laughs> he's in the full costume and he's just like, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. I got class. Come on, come on. <laughs> but because of this t- attempt, uh, classes get canceled for good. And there's a curfew in place in town. So obviously with a curfew and cl- class is being canceled, it's party time. Let's throw a party. And uh, Gail takes the cameraman to the party in an attempt to try to talk to Sydney again. But Dewey intercepts her and she puts the charm on and tries to get uh, Dewey to... Uh, you know, show her, give, give her the inside scoop. But there's also something serious there, as we'll see later on in the franchise. Uh, they enter the party. Dewey decides not to bust the party goers for underage drinking. He's like, hey, you're underage. Ah, I'm just messing with you. <laughs> it's, he's the cool you know, He's the cool cop. He's trying to be the cool guy. He's trying really hard. But nobody, nobody would take him seriously anyway if he did try and arrest people. So, you know, he, and and he knows that, which you know shows, you know, he does have some intelligence to him. He knows that, you know, he's outnumbered. He there's no way he could attempt 
to have any kind of control over that situation. He is mostly just focused on trying to find Sydney and make sure that she's okay, which is a very smart thing. I do want to go back back up just a second when you're talking about the scene in the bathroom. Yeah. That that scene was um, shot as kind of like a proof of concept in a way um, of the of the movie itself. Um, and Rose McGowan actually played the cheerleader that was trash talking Sydney. So fun little bit of trivia. Um, I learned from listening to the editor, uh, Patrick Lussier, who worked um, a lot with Wes Craven in his career as his editor. Um, he mentioned that. So nice little bit of trivia for you. Very cool. That's neat. I uh, So proof of concept, like this was like they filmed that to kind of try to sell the movie. Well, it was it was like it was kind of a, a way of showing you know, this is what the dialogue is going to kind of be like, you know, this is what we're going for with this movie, things like that. Okay. And I mean, you know, obviously I'm sure Bob Weinstein was probably rubbing his genitals while he was watching it going, Ooh, yeah. Okay. I like this. Yeah. 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 How much money you guys need? Yeah. No problem. (laughs) Well, I know that Bob Weinstein was the one who kept going to them saying like, is this going to be scary enough? And they kept showing him dailies, and he's like, oh, okay, I'm good. So, okay, here you go. Um, Because of the way that they were doing the shooting for this, they were editing. Patrick Lussier was editing the movie, you know, as it was being shot. And Wes Craven was able to see a lot of the footage being assembled, you know, per his for his, you know, his instructions and how he worked with Patrick Lussier and how they had a good relationship. So he was able to see the finished product evolve as they were doing it, um, which I think they had like a couple of months, three to four months to put the film together before releasing it. Whereas in Scream 2, it was like a matter of weeks they had to get it, you know, edited and just push it out to theaters because it came out almost like it came out the next year. So like they fucking churn these things out real quick back to back. That's awesome. And considering they didn't have that much time to edit part two, I think part two might be my favorite of the, of the, of them, honestly, like there's some moments in part two that are fucking terrifying. And, uh, I think it really speaks to their, you know, their talent that they were able to crank that out and not just, you know, crank it out, but crank out a good product. I think that and the fact that they had a little more uh, scope to it, you know, yeah. it it was, you know, the scream took place in a small town. This one was on a college campus and the surrounding town. And it was a lot bigger. It felt a lot bigger. Um, so, yeah, it was pretty impressive what they were able to do with, the, you know, time constraints and things like that. True. Very true. So we forgot to mention the scene where, uh, Principal Fonzie gets stabbed, and uh, it's always sad to see Henry Winkler go, but it's cool that we got a janitor cameo from Wes Craven wearing a Freddy's sweater. That was cool. Oh, yeah. Okay, so check this out. Not only did uh, Henry Winkler, like, go in hard on those kids, like, literally actually scaring the shit out of them, those were real scissors that he had. So those weren't those weren't prop, those weren't rubber, none of that. Those are real scissors, and they had no idea 
how like how dark he was going to get on him um and apparently probably lost forever to time there's actually like there was extended footage of uh Wes Craven as Fred the janitor which he was totally embracing and on board for like hamming it up doing fucking walking down the hallway slipping and falling on his mop water and all this shit um kind of like muttering under his breath about these goddamn kids and uh, it like <laughs> if only if only we could have seen that i think it might have taken away from the film overall but it should have been in there like i think the way i was the way i heard it in this commentary i heard from uh, adam green joe lynch and patrick lucier from getting some of these anecdotes from um that should have been at the end credits just let Wes Craven like do his thing. And apparently he was really, he was really up for it. Um, there wasn't any reluctance on his part. He just totally went, went for it. That's awesome. I'm glad that he was willing to embrace that. I'm, I would have been neat to get to see more scenes of, him. I would have had him pop up in all four movies just randomly, like Fred's, you know, mopping something up and just being <laughs> like fucking ghost face. God damn it. <laughs> Can't get a decent job in this town. Like just some, you know, something like that. <laughs> yeah. So at the party, uh, Billy and Sydney go upstairs and they fuck. Sydney's like, it's time, Billy. And Billy's like, really? It's time? And Sydney's like, yeah, I think so. He's like, well, as long as you're sure. And they go to Bone Town, which, according to the rules, means Sydney's now up for grabs for the killer. And uh, during that, Tatum goes to the garage to get more beer. And she gets taken out by Ghostface, who... Kills her with a garage door. So innovative. She tries to crawl through the pet door, which is weird because I never, I don't ever think we ever see a pet. But um, she's crawling through the door, and Ghostface clicks the garage door. She gets, you know, sent up with the garage door, breaks her neck. But I can't believe nobody finds her because that's where the beer is. Like nobody went to get more beer. Well, okay, so so the way so the way I understood it in the geography of things is they had a keg in the kitchen and they probably were taking beer from the garage into the house. You know, party rules, you know, if you're running the party, you try to keep space limited, you know, you have no go zones, things like that. I think because it was her boyfriend's house, she knew where the good stuff was. Yeah. And that's where she was going to get it. You know. Probably one of the most, you know, like free paused frames in horror movie history is when she opens that door in the garage and it's just bing, nips right there. Yeah, fair enough. Everybody's done it. Everybody's done it. I've done it probably too much, but yeah, it's just it's right there, right out in front of you. Um, but even Tatum, she she was somewhat formidable, which I think is kind of a testament to what Wes was doing with this, with this franchise. You know, there were a lot of, you know, capable females in this. They didn't, not all of them went down easy. True. One of my favorite things about Ghostface in particular is the amount of times his ass gets knocked down. Cause like 
he's just a guy in a costume. He's not Freddy with, you know, he's not Jason. He's not Michael. He's not supernatural. He's not strong. He's just a dude. So like he gets knocked over quite a lot in this franchise. Like, somebody will just throw something at him and he'll just be like, ah, and it follow. It seems like he's drunk. It makes me laugh. It makes me laugh. Yeah. It feels like Ghostface is drunk the whole movie. Yeah. And definitely, definitely makes that, um, again, like this whole movie, subverting tropes and established ideas it's showing you that this is just a dude yeah they're they're capable of making mistakes they can be taken advantage of you can hurt them but for one reason or another like it's like so like i have this uh idea about michael myers being kind of like this this killer and monster that works in a totally like only in the world of a movie could you have him exist because he pops in and out of frame, you know, like you see him in one instance and then you turn around and he's gone in the next shot. Like he seems to exist within the film itself. Whereas uh, the ghost face, you know, is, is very human, very, human, very susceptible to the, the, the laws of, you know, the, the genre they're working within and, you know, human beings in general true and the killers in this one are billy and Stu, and we know for a fact these are some sloppy idiots so they're gonna be you know Stu's probably the one who took out tatum and he's an he's a fucking moron so of course he's gonna be you know slipping and letting her throw beer at him and fucking up it, it speaks well for the character it actually gives you like kind of hints on who this is see okay and that's something i've, I've tried to think about and I haven't had the opportunity to actually like break it down and study it, but trying to figure out who's doing what, when, yes. because, you know, you look on it from the outside and you know who the killers are, then the game becomes, well, when is that Stu? And when is it Billy? When you do know, they switch? And yeah. It, yeah. When are they playing it really straight up? Is Billy just going after Sydney is to, you know, like how, how often are they going solo or, you know, they're definitely working together in the beginning, for sure. For sure. So that's definitely a fun game to try and figure out. I think that all the times uh, Sydney was being chased, I think it was Billy because it's because of his personal attachment to that. But I think when it was like, you know, Tatum's murder and Henry Winkler, I think that was Stu because he's just completely fucking crazy and just wanted to kill people like his motives don't really exist. He's just here to kill. So I think that's how I would see it. When it's a personal attack, it's it's Billy. When it's crazy shit, it's Stu. Fair enough. Yeah, but we don't. No, I don't know. That's just that's the way I look at it. Uh, so Tatum gets killed by the by the killer. Uh, after Sydney and Billy have sex, uh, Sydney again kind of questions Billy like. Well, if you met, you had a phone call from jail, you could have called me. It would have been a good way to throw throw me off. And Billy's like, you still think it's me? And then Ghostface, Ghostface comes in and stabs him. I love that. <laughs> like, you still think I'm the killer? And Ghostface walks right in and just, ah! And she's like, ah! <laughs> uh, we think Billy's dead. Another chase starts. Dewey gets stabbed. And uh, Gail in the news van swerves to avoid hitting Sydney in the uh, in the road. Runs into a tree. We think Gail's dead now. Sydney goes back to the house. Uh, Randy is... Uh, before all this, I wanted to bring up this scene because it's my favorite scene. 
Randy's watching Halloween with the party goers. Yes. Party goers leave, and Randy is screaming at the TV, Jamie, run. Oh, my God, he's right behind you. Just as Ghostface is creeping up on him. But the music in Halloween is echoing the scene of Ghostface. It's perfect. Like the dun dun music from Halloween is fitting the scream scene here, and I fucking love that. That's it's beautiful. so layered, and it's like fucking screamception. It's it's fantastic. And uh, that's where we learn about Randy's rules. And uh, let me see if I can find those. Uh, the rules of scream are as follows. So Randy's rules. Um, one second. Okay, number one, you will not survive if you have sex. Number two, you will not survive if you do drinks, or if you if you drink or do drugs. Number three, you will not survive if you say I'll be right back. <laughs> number four, everyone is a suspect. And uh, yeah, there we go. Uh, there's two additional rules that come from the killer. Number five, you will not survive if you ask who's there. Number six, you will not survive if you go out to investigate a strange noise. Randy does all of this except have sex. <laughs> so, yeah, he's his. Uh, I, I, I think we'd probably be Randy in this situation. Like we, we know a lot about horror. We'd try, we try not to get into these situations, but, you know, shit's inevitable. <laughs> I, yeah, mean, I, I would I, think. I, I would definitely die because I like to drink and at one point I was doing drugs, but you know, that's, that's what makes, you know, all these characters and stuff like even in the dumbest slashers, like the Friday the 13th movies, the burning, anything, you know, sleepaway camp also, it's like everybody's done it. So like it, it's, it's a very common thing. It's a very easy thing to relate to. Yeah. And it, it just makes sense. You know, a lot of it's common sense. Like, yeah, when there's a killer on the list, you shouldn't just go, I'll be right back and go away alone. Makes sense. So when Sydney ends up in the house, uh, she sees Randy and Stu both claiming that the other one is the killer. She locks them both out. Like, she's not going to deal with that shit. And Billy stumbles down the stairs, bloodied, lets Randy and Stu into the house, and tells uh, Sydney, who's got hold of uh, Dewey's gun, give me the gun, Sid, it's okay. He, she gives him the gun without question, immediately shoots Randy in the shoulder and says, you know, corn syrup. Billy's the killer. He pretended to be stabbed. And then we find out Stu is his accomplice because he's got the, uh, the voice changer. We And uh, Billy's motive is that he holds uh, Sidney's mother responsible for destroying his family. She had an affair with his father. Uh his mother left. Uh, his mother abandoned him. They, his parents got divorced, and he just sees this as his family was completely destroyed by Maureen Prescott. And frankly, the entire goddamn franchise is because of Maureen, Maureen Prescott. Like, she fucked up a lot. But, you know, Scream 3 kind of shines a light on why. And I, when I was watching this initially, I was like, you know, when I got to Scream 2, I'm like, that bitch slept around so much and fucked up so many lives. And then I watched scream three and I was like, Ooh, I shouldn't have said that. 
I got real. I felt really bad. But especially like you know, this franchise was produced by the Weinstein's, and Scream Three really very much deals with the horrors of the casting couch. So very fucked up. Foreshadowing. Yeah. Jesus Christ. When I heard like when I was watching Scream Three again, I had completely forgotten about that subplot. So when I was watching it, they start talking about how Maureen Prescott was abused by Hollywood. I'm like, God, Harvey's sitting right over there while they're reading this script out. Like, motherfucker. (laughs) They're not talking to me, are they? (laughs) I wonder how many actresses in Scream 3 had to play with Harvey to get in there. Well, there, there was the one girl who kind of, you know, had that line. So... Yeah, Emily Mortimer. I remember that. Yeah. It's oh, so that funny. Mo- she had that whole, like, soft, demure, fucking fresh out of Kansas look to her. And then she does that with this, like, total maniac face. That's great. Yeah, for sure. It's really, uh, it's really fucked up. I didn't sleep with. Lance Henriksen to get fucking murdered. It was really fucked up. So, uh, <laughs> uh, Billy reveals that like their plan is they're gonna kill Sydney. They're gonna they have Sydney's dad locked up in a closet. They're gonna kill him, frame him, stab each other, and act like they're the uh, lone survivors of the Ghostface Killer. And uh, <laughs> they uh, they start stabbing each other. And uh, Billy stabs Sue a little deep. Starts uh, he starts bleeding out. And uh, Sydney says, uh, "You sick fucks have seen one too many movies." And Billy yells, "Don't blame the movies. Movies don't create psychos. Movies make psychos more creative." <laughs> Great line. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I liked um, I liked uh, when Matthew Willard uh, got stabbed. You know, a little too deep. You got me a little too deep. I'm feeling a little woozy here. That always, always gets me for a laugh. And on top of that, Billy, you know, plays right up into the that that he's a horror geek himself when he quotes Norman Bates. We all go a little mad sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> for me, like hands down, the laugh is when uh, Billy throws the phone at Stu, and Stu just goes, "You hit me with the phone, Dick." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect improv, like improv from uh, Lillard there. Fantastic. <laughs> so like, while, like, while they're stabbing oh, each other, hmm? oh, like uh, all I was saying is like uh, I was watching this with my wife, and I was blown away by her ability to just quote this movie line by line. And I like looked at her and I was just like, I love you so much. She was like, what are you talking about? You are quoting this movie verbatim. I love you. So I got lucky. That's beautiful, man. (laughs) So Billy tells Stu to go get the gun. Stu goes to get the gun and he goes, "Uh, Houston, we have a problem because the gun's gone. And uh, Gail shows up and uh, tries to shoot them, but the safety's on, and Billy <laughs> knocks her outside. 
and uh, Sydney's gone missing. She is hiding in the in the uh, closet. She stabs Billy with a umbrella, like while dressed as Ghostface, which I thought was a little weird. Like, when did she have time to put that on? Or why did she even put that on? It allowed her to hide in the dark. My wife actually asked that very question. She's like, how did he not see her in the closet? I was like, because she was camouflaged. Obviously. That makes... I'll take it. That makes sense to me. I'll it's good it. enough, yeah. <laughs> she stabs him with the umbrella and then uh, kills Stu with the TV. I love that. You want to know? You want to know the line that I said right when she dropped the TV on his face? Sure. Welcome to prime time, bitch. <laughs> Fuck yeah! <laughs> Fuck yeah! Perfect. <laughs> it's a Nightmare on Elm Street reference, duh. Even though he didn't direct fucking Dream Warriors. <laughs> Still perfect. I love that Stu's reaction is, my mom and dad are going to be so mad at me. He's so insane. <laughs> He's completely fucking bonkers. Oh, so great. <laughs> uh, Sydney gets a hold of the gun, shoots Billy, and then uh, Gail comes in. Oh, she, Gail shot Billy first. <laughs> He's like, safety's on now, bitch, or something like that. <laughs> and... Uh, Billy and uh, I mean, uh, Gail and Sydney are standing over Billy and Sydney's like, hold on. They always come back one last time. And Billy's like, ah, and sh- Sid shoots him in the forehead. He's gone. Yeah. Yeah. It was Randy. He said, this is this is the point where the killer comes back for one final scare. And it's yeah. Just- <laughs> Dewey's revealed to be alive somehow. And uh, Randy's alive. Gail starts reporting about the. Uh, the scene of the crime, all is good until Scream 2, of course. Uh, so here's some filmgasm facts. Number one, the high school scenes were to be shot at Santa. Nature, as they had been under the impression the film was a comedy and the production was moved to Heldsburg, California. As payback, director Wes Craven put in the end credits under the special thanks section, no thanks whatsoever to the Santa Rosa City School District Governing Board. <laughs> Petty. I love it. But that's a dick move. It's a movie It's a movie called Scream. It's directed by Wes Craven. I mean, do your research before you agree to let the movie be shot. Uh, number two. Wes Craven discovered the ghost face mask while scouting for filming locations in California. Craven was walking through a possible filming house, and inside one of the rooms, he saw the mask hung on a wall. He sent a photo to Dimension Films, and they told him to have the prop department make a mask similar to the mask in the bedroom, as they did not own the rights to this mask. But how cool is that? Wes Craven just kind of stumbled upon Ghostface mask, and it became such an iconic part of horror culture. I mean, that's just the same thing you could say about them using a fucking negative Captain Kirk mask for fucking Halloween. It was just like this thing you just stumble on. You're like, wait, no, that's terrifying. Like, it totally dehumanizes whoever's behind it. You can't see anything. You just have this blank expression on there. Yeah, totally, totally terrifying. 
perfect. It's awesome. I love little kismet stories like that. Number three. At one point during the filming of the opening scene, somebody forgot to unplug the phone that Casey used to try and call the cops. This resulted in real puzzle 911 operators hearing Drew Barrymore screaming for her life on the other end. That must have been a little traumatizing for the uh, switchboard to just hear Drew Barrymore freaking the fuck out, not knowing it's a movie. <laughs> oh, hey, fun fact about the phone call. Those yeah. were all real, real, like, on, like, real conversations that they're happening at that time. It wasn't like, you know, somebody off camera reading the, the lines from the killer. It was happening in that moment. That's awesome. The screen, the uh, the voice was uh, Roger Jackson, right? Some guy. Yeah, yeah, it was actually some dude. It wasn't just a some weird like voice changing knockoff or whatever. That's cool. That guy's got you know his own little you know he got he was the voice of the killer in Scream. That's a cool thing to brag about. Hell yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like the uh, the fucking trailer guy in a world. You know. <laughs> oh hell yeah. I wish I wish I could be that guy that just does. Sandra Bullock and Keanu Reeves on a bus. <laughs> Speed. Speed. It's just two brothers. <laughs> <laughs> it's just called Two Brothers. God damn it. I still got to watch this past uh, week's episode. I'm behind. So good. Uh, and number four, this movie has the uncomfortable distinction now of being the birthplace of the Me Too movement. Since Rose McGowan met uh, producer Harvey Weinstein through this movie and their association through this movie led to her eventual rape by Harvey Weinstein. And then her calling him out in the media for being a serial predator led to a domino effect, which caused the modern Me Too movement. After Rose McGowan called out Weinstein, Alyssa Milano went on Twitter and encouraged all the other victims of Weinstein to come forward and post Me Too on Twitter. She then said anyone who's been victimized by any sexual assault post Me Too as well, and this led to the unexpected chain reaction to the Me Too movement itself. And it all started with Scream. Fucked up that it had to happen at all, but I'm glad that eventually he was called out on this shit and he is going to rot in prison. Well, I think the thing about it is that it just got called out, period. Um, the fact that it was such a thing that was allowed to persist for as long as it did, I mean, it's been a part an ugly part of you know filmmaking history like movie industry history not just hollywood but the the whole industry as a whole for a long long time um the fact that it took this long for something like this to happen is pretty sad but it had to take a brave person to Kind of stand up and and identify themselves um there are some other parallels to it like i don't know how much you guys paid attention to like Corey feldman um was very prominent in a lot of these kind of discussions about like child actors and the advantage you know how much he was taken advantage of when he was younger um cory haim as well um i actually contributed to um like i like i paid to watch the documentary that he had made about naming specific people 
that were involved in his abuse, Corey Haynes' abuse, things like that. Um, I, that was kind of like overhyped, and there were some weird other things that happened with the release of it. And, you know, we could kind of talk a little bit more about that offline. But the big thing about it was he actually like affected change in California to where they kind of removed the statute of limitations for when these things happen because wow. of because of when things happened with Corey Feldman and Corey Hain and when he chose to like name people and try to pursue charges too much time had passed so i think it was 2015 i think that california removed those so it doesn't it doesn't count for anything that happened prior to that but anything that happens from that time on these these pervs and these fucking sickos have nowhere to hide you know and it should it should change it should change it shouldn't exist that this is just that's the way it goes that's bullshit too many people stake their livelihood and their hopes and dreams on going to Hollywood and making it big. They shouldn't have to, you know, not just sell their souls to go make it happen, but sell their bodies and their integrity to just to be in a movie. That's ridiculous. It's not yeah. that important. Yeah. yeah. It's disgusting. And I hate that it's been an open secret for literally since the beginning of fucking Hollywood. Everyone yeah. knew about Harvey Weinstein. Nobody did shit because he was so powerful. And, even jokes at the Oscars, you know, in the Golden Globes, things like, you know, and now here's the award for all the women who didn't have to sleep with Harvey Weinstein and shit like that. Like, it was a joke. So that that, sh that shouldn't have been a joke. And it's not one of those things like that's why I love somebody like Ricky Gervais being on the Golden Globes and just roasting every one of those fuckers. Yeah, because you sit there and you. You you talk a big game, but you don't do anything about it. Like you're gonna have to be uncomfortable and endure and face up to the fact that you were probably quiet and something like this happened because you didn't say something. And they kept him coming back. So like it's not like they didn't know what they were getting when Ricky Gervais was hosting the fucking Golden Globes. That was so satisfying to see him just say like you all did it, not me. Like y'all, like you all, you know, did movies with him. You all knew what was going on. Like it's not even, it wasn't even a joke. It was just straight up like this is what happened, and you have to live with that. Like I'm glad he addressed that. Nobody else was fucking addressing that. Everyone was just trying to act like, well, he's on, he's in jail, so let's move on. No, well, that's not how it works. They're protecting their own pockets, and uh, you know. And trying to protect the guy who, yeah, I mean, it, it's disgusting. We can look back, and this has been going on forever, like you said, Connor since the beginning of Hollywood, how they want to protect themselves and protect their, their own kind and keep, yeah, keep lying in their own pockets. It's fucked up. It's, it's, um, it, it makes you question why you like consistently do this and watch movies all the time. Cause you're just like, what really goes on? But, uh, it, it, yeah, it'll be a constant battle. I'll always have in my mind. Um, but yeah, fuck the Weinsteins. Jesus Christ. Yeah. It's a shame they were so instrumental in scream success. But, you know, like we said with Roman Polanski, you have to separate the work from the man. Yes. Or else you'll never be able to enjoy anything. Yes. Well, I don't think about Harvey Weinstein when I watch Scream. I think about Wes Craven. So, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, same. And, and that's that's a good that's a great point. Is uh, trying to look at a uh, glasses half full. Scream still did do great things for the horror genre. It did great things for those actors. It did great things for Wes Craven. Yeah, it's it's. I don't want to look at it so narrow minded, especially when a movie like this entertains me so much. So, um, for me, I I think I know y'all's uh, y'all's ratings. I believe one of you guys has this movie as a ten. Um, which one of you is it? That was me. Yeah, you have it as a ten, and Connor, you have it as an an eight. Yes. Yeah, I, I I'm I lean more your way, Connor, of the eight, but I know, um, I think it might be different if we were born the same time Josh was. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Might be, Maybe. I mean, having, having that personal theater experience and when it actually actually changed the game in real time, it's just different. Yeah, there's very few horror films that I saw at the movies that I knew immediately like these are gonna be special. Yeah, like game changer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like the witch is one that I can remember thinking that. Um, yeah. The same lighthouse. with the lighthouse. Um, Hereditary for sure. Yeah. Uh, Get out. Like there are some movies that I saw and was like, this is, I'm in the middle of something special here. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, that doesn't happen very often. A lot of the times it's just kind of like that was good or that sucked. Yeah. But sometimes you do get those gems, and Scream was one of those gems. For sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. There were three sequels made, all of which had Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, and David Arquette return in the lead roles. There was 1997's Scream 2, which saw Sydney facing a new Ghostface killer while in college. IMDb score 62%, Rotten Tomatoes score 82%, higher than the first movie, which surprised me. Then there was 2000's Scream 3, which saw a new Ghostface killing people on the set of the latest horror movie based on Sydney's life. IMDb score 5.6, Rotten Tomatoes 39%, and I had totally forgotten about Jay and Silent Bob just popping up in the background. <laughs> oh, man, yeah, I did too. I did too. It's fucking Connie Chung. <laughs> so great. 15 bucks, little man. Put that shit in my hand. <laughs> I just watched, like, all of those, so it was really fresh in my head. I'm glad I did that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then there was 2011 Scream 4, which drags Ghostface into the discussion of internet fame and social media obsession. IMDb 6.1, Rotten Tomatoes 60%. Uh, and then in 2015, Scream, the TV series, premiered on MTV to mixed reviews. The show is a straight-up reboot with new characters. It's lasted three seasons so far, with the recent season seeing the show move to VH1 and rebooted with a new cast. Never a good sign. <coughs> The show has not yet been renewed for a fourth season, but it hasn't been canceled either. It's kind of in limbo right now. But I can't imagine it's going to be that. I mean, to move to a new channel and has a new cast, I mean, that's just, that's not a good sign. Like, I uh, earlier today, uh, Ruby Rose uh, left Batwoman. Uh, they're they're going to be recasting the, the role for season two. So that is a yeah. huge red flag. That show's dead in the water now. I don't see that working out. But, you know, I I watched the pilot of Batwoman. I wasn't that jazzed like I was with the rest of the Arrow shows. And I, I liked those for the most part. They're corny and cheesy and repetitive, but, you know, they're entertaining. Um, Yeah, like you said, I give Scream an 8. Horror classic. I do enjoy it. Doesn't lose any punch when you know the twist. And uh, we got an 8 from Austin, 10 from Josh. And uh, I bet Caleb would probably give this a 10 as well. Seems like he would. Yeah. Do, do you know anything about that, Josh? How he feels about this movie? Um, 
he's probably going to be if if he doesn't go towards my end, he might just land in the middle. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I know he really likes Wes Craven. Um, I was the one that told him, you know, well, I didn't really tell him so much as I berated him for having never watched Last House on the Left or The Hills Have Eyes, things like that. Um, you going to start I mean, berating now? I mean, you know, give me some time. I will. Um, I'm down. (laughs) (laughs) So I I always put it to Caleb. I was like, you have homework now. You will watch these movies and you will tell me about them. The thing about Caleb, as we all know, is he is very methodical with his uh, entertainment consumption. And so if it isn't at the top of his list, he will get to it eventually. And that's when I usually just go hard on him. You know, when you're when you're trapped on a ship with him, you can make him do anything you want. I'll just put it like that. <laughs> God damn. I get that, though. You know, I, I have a list as well. And it, when you're constantly adding to it, you know, you don't throw it on the top. And I understand that to a point. But, yeah, I can understand, you know, beration will, will change that list for sure. Well, it's more <laughs> just like. It's more just like, you know, you you only know Wes Craven from this point on. It's like you need to see these things because yes. it 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 occupies a very special place within, you know, horror and this person's career. I mean, this was his first his first feature that he made and he got to do that after being uh working with her like a, like a production house or whatever for like a year and a half. They were like, look, you've wanted to make movies, huh? You were, you're an English professor in college year and a half in the job because he was older and he knew how to network. They handed him, you know, like go write something you can direct. And his boss at the time was Sean Cunningham. So like, you know, all of these things start to like, makes sense it's like oh shit Don Cunningham was working with a fledgling Wes Craven and then he goes and makes Friday the 13th Wes Craven four years later Nightmare on Elm Street totally you know makes new line cinema a fucking name unto itself there's just like all these things that within within the genre itself you know when I was coming up I was just watching these movies. I wasn't making these, I wasn't connecting these dots until I got older. And then it was like, oh shit, all these things start to make sense. Yeah. And you start to figure all this other stuff out. Um, I've recently uh, bought and watched the documentary about Mark Patton, who was the main character in uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. And that opens up a whole other side of horror movies in the eighties and how, you know, it was, it's jokingly referred to as the gay nightmare, but Mark Patton is a gay man. And there's a very real price he had to pay for being a gay man and trying to, you know, be an actor at that time. It's right around the same time as like AIDS ravaged Hollywood and all this other stuff. So it's like all of these little bits where horror is right in there with, you know, history at the time. So like things that some people treat as like throwaway movies, you're like, wait a minute. 
So this guy, the guy who was in the wheelchair in Friday the 13th Part 2, he was also a gay man who ended up dying of AIDS. There was a whole documentary that was made about him. So it's just like all of these different sides to a genre that uh, I think I made the I think I made the um, I made a comparison to it where like Wes Craven's very intelligent and he wrote you know he directed Scream is a very smart movie in a genre that's not known for its intelligence. So like you know you you, you get to see these things in here and find out that you know there are so many different sides to this genre and it's very important yes. because all of these things are happening behind the scenes and you don't get it but then when you know it all of these other movies start to make more sense and become that much more important to you i've yeah. always loved i've always loved nightmare elm street part two um it's really weird how like i said earlier in the, in the show about context and when you start to understand the context of certain things, it gives you new meaning. And then you start to appreciate things in a whole new way that you never even knew before. And I can give you importance to movies that on the outside, nobody even thinks twice about. And that's what I've tried to do when I met Caleb, when I talked to you guys about these weird ass movies I watch from trauma, especially I could go down the line about you know the jobs they've given the people lloyd coffin's philosophy on how he does his stuff and it's just like so progressive at a time when nobody was doing that shit so you know context is key to everything is i guess like the summation for that that's wow man that's uh that's heavy stuff and i'm glad that uh that you have that outlook i think it's important especially for horror to appreciate it. I think, you know, a lot of people disown horror just cause you know, I don't want to get freaked out or that's trash, but it's a whole genre of people doing, I think the most innovative work that's ever been done in film. Yeah. Yeah. And somebody needs to shine a light on that. And at the moment it's us. So, you know, we do what we can. Yeah. I, I think you put it beautifully. Cause that like my favorite thing about movies is, those like little moments it's not even while watching them it's those little moments that you connect those dots that you figure out oh damn like something that's always blown me away um is like some, someone like paul thomas anderson that's like a guy i'm always always watching his stuff and you find out as i've gotten older that oh like he used johnny greenwood who you know worked with radiohead and he you know did the music for you know worked on there will be blood and then did the master music and those little things about movies is what like kind of keeps your gears grinding the uh the the point A to point B, how do you actually get there? And someone like Wes Craven, I agree with you, is so important for someone like Connor and I to go back and research because of those things. And, and I think you put it you put it well, Josh, it's like, you just got to see the past because there's a way someone got to where they were. There's a way Scream came to be. You got to see the shit that happened before. I, you couldn't have put it any better. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. I think like me and Austin, we experienced that big time when we went back and did the big Weird Shit Wednesday episodes on Vincent Price. Yeah, and okay. John Wayne and Philip Seymour Hoffman, we got to see their beginnings and their ends, and it, I think it made me understand them as human beings a lot more. Yes, for sure. Especially Vincent Price, you find out this guy just how much his hand was in and how how strong he was uh, for 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 the gay community. You brought up, you know, how AIDS was booming. 
he stood up for those people, you know, and is one of the first voices that was, hey, let's use our art to, you know, promote good things and try to help people. So cool. Oh, after doing that episode, Vincent Price became one of my favorite people, like learning about who he was. Such a good person. Same. Yeah. He is a fucking national treasure. I feel so, so like lucky that he's an American actor. Yeah. He's so revered in the the genre as well and he he like never half-assed anything he was in he always gave it his all he was such a professional and he he was a lover of art overall just art period um my wife gave me hi jamie i love you you're listening to this when we when this gets put out um she gave me one of the best christmas presents of all time and she bought me uh, a treasury of great recipes which is a cookbook that he, uh, vincent put together with his wife mary a uh, collection of recipes from hotels and restaurants all over the world and i had been looking for it for years and she bought it for me for christmas as a total surprise and again it's one of these moments where i look at her and say, I, I love you like gets me she gets me i love all these weird campy movies and people who really just leave nothing you know everything is fucking put out on the screen vincent price is one of those people a goddamn treasure (laughs) yes for sure well uh so what are we doing on friday austin what do we got this friday uh, Friday, we got a fun bonus. Wanted to keep it real, real 90s. Um, not the same year, not 96, but just three years three years after, and that'll be American Pie from 1999. <laughs> it was really tough to find a non-horror bonus for Scream. So we decided to just do a 90s teen comedy, maybe like the ultimate 90s teen comedy. Yes. And go into American Pie. Just have a fucking blast, just tearing that movie apart and just quoting it. And yeah. That's gonna be that's gonna be fun. Oh yeah, gonna be gonna be a blast. And uh, yeah, you know, the following week we got we got a real exciting one from Catherine Bigelow near dark. So yeah, it's the train does not stop. No, it does not, indeed. So let's see what happened this week in film. It was announced that Suspiria and Call Me by Your Name director Luca Guadagnino will be directing the long discussed Scarface reboot. Uh, I don't. Yikes. We don't need one. I don't. I, I, but to be fair, he did do a good job with Suspiria. I was really that was neat how he did that. Yeah, but maybe he'll bring that same kind of like you know new, new meets old combo with Scarface. But mm. this movie's been they've been trying to make this for like 20 years now, and I I don't know if it'll ever happen. Well, and another thing about Suspiria is that it it you know it has it had its place, uh, or always has had its place as kind of like a you know an indie you know an indie gem that really a lot of people know about. But you know it's one of those. But Scarface. Scarface is like a massive, massive movie from the 80s. I just don't under- understand. Um, Suspiria felt different. It felt like a remake was um, not necessary, but it ha- there was enough to do there differently that no one had seen yet, uh, even if you're remaking it. But Scarface, I feel like everybody's seen that. Under the sun, right? Yeah. What do you think, Josh? Um, so I'll address the, uh, the Suspiria thing. I've, I think Suspiria um, was like a good cover song. In that, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Luca Guadagnino like did made it his own. Um, nobody 
was going to be able to touch what Dario Argento yeah. did with yeah. that movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and actually, okay, I'm, I'm going to name drop a good friend of mine. Uh, his name's Ty Krebs. He is, you guys think I know about movies. This guy makes me look like a retard. Again, sorry, I use that word. If anybody's offended, just come at me, whatever. But um, <laughs> he is, he's super intelligent. Um, his mom exposed him to Phantasm when he was a kid. You know, my mom introduced me to Freddy Krueger. His mom introduced him to the tall man. So like, we're right there with each other. Um, and um, he knows way more about like Giallo and stuff like this. But what he, the, the point he made about it was like these movies were made, especially Italian horror movies, were made to be visually and auditorially like an assault on your senses because yes. people at the time would go into movie theaters to take naps, fall asleep to. So these movies had to like wake you up, which is why the visuals and why the music in Italian horror movies, especially in the case of Suspiria were such like at the forefront, like the right in front of you plot character development, be damned. It's all about the visuals and the, and the score. Um, I don't, I don't understand why somebody needs to remake Scarface. Scarface is, you know, it, it's such a product of its time. If yes. you were to go, and, if you were to go and try to like take the idea of that and then take another era, I guess, in history to try and like interject that into maybe I could see the reason for that. But if you're just trying to go and remake that, there's no point. Well, I think since we got Luca Guadagnino behind it, I think he is going to try to make it a new character in a new time and a new place. Cause that's what he did with Suspiria. And remember 83 Scarface is a remake of the 32 Scarface, which was a Al Capone biopic unofficially. So yeah, I think yeah. this is going to be kind of a legacy movie where like, Every director takes a spin on it, kind of does their own thing with a new idea, which could be uh -huh. interesting. We'll, we'll see. I'm going to see it. I'm going to see it in theaters. I, I just wish, especially, I like Call Me By Your Name. I just wish he was doing something different. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Something original. It's okay, though. Yeah, we yeah, yeah, can't win them all. True. George Miller is developing a prequel to Mad Max Fury Road titled Furiosa which will tell the story of Charlize Theron's character from the action hit. Since it's a prequel, Theron is not returning. Killing Eve star Jodie Comer is being eyed to star. I I don't need to know. I think leaving the character some mystery is is good. I think yeah. all we need to know is she's a badass who, you know, went against a Morton Joe to save some women. And that's that's fine. That's all we need to know. Yeah. What, what What's going on? Yeah. I mean, we could talk about this all day. It, I get so tired of uh, part of the reason I love, you know, movies, especially over TV. Like I prefer movies over TV is because of that, um, you know, that, that time limit, that time frame to be creative, the practicality where TV, you can just take your time, have all this character development and do, you know, have these kind of waste, these spacers, these fillers, just in order to have that, you know, meet that seven o'clock window so you can make money each week. I just, that's not my style. I more prefer the movie thing. But if you, <laughs> Mad Max Fury Road, you pointed out the reason it's so cool is because both those characters, Hardy and Throne, you're it's full of mystery. It's full of wonder. And I, I personally, I don't want to lose that. I, that's the, that's one of the reasons I hated 
El Camino is I wanted to hold on to that Jesse Pinkman mystery, and they just completely they completely kicked me in the face with it. And I just, that's just not my style, you know. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. It's been a long time since I saw Fury Road. I honestly do not remember oh. it that well. I should give it another watch. Oh, damn good. I liked it a lot. I just it's been a long time. Um, I think I think it was really wonderful that we got another like movie set in that world because you you see like how hard he worked on these other movies to get to that point yeah. and then he just he was allowed to just go totally off the chain just fully embrace this world that he created um to me the road warrior is probably one of the best um, the best uh, exploitation movies that ever come out of Australia at that time, and that's a whole other area of movies like you guys should check out. Like Australian movies from that time frame, from the 70s and 80s, they were doing things that like they were pushing so many limits and buttons and borrowing so much from America, but like making it uniquely theirs. Um, I reviewed a movie while I was in Florida for a school. Uh, it's called uh, Dead End Drive-In. And that movie is so, like, just so ahead of its time and just crazy. Like, you wouldn't get that kind of stuff in America. And that's another reason why I love movies from other countries, especially other English-speaking countries. Yes. Because, like, you just just enough difference culturally that you're like wow that's what really gets these fuckers off over there (laughs) cool let's do it yeah man australia is a great point because you that's not a country you would think about initially right you think of france and italy and united states and england but that's a good call australia i've read that like you said ahead of their time i've heard that in the 70s and 80s the action that's happening there is almost like law bending like they're breaking laws while filming this kind of stuff. So yeah, I'm very intrigued by that. Right on guys. I've really, yeah, I haven't really tapped into Australian film besides I've seen the Mad Max franchise, but that's, that's kind of it. I'm going to have to definitely look into Australia's uh, action scene. That's for sure. I think there's a documentary about the whole Osploitation thing. Um, I've yet to watch it, but I know a few of the movies they talk about. It's called far from Hollywood, I believe. And that should give you a good list of things to just start digesting. Yeah, yeah. I'll keep that in mind. Two trailers were dropped this week. The first, a Russell Crowe-led road thriller called Unhinged. Looks bizarre, but entertaining. Is it the movie that's going to turn the, uh, like get people back to theaters? <laughs> Not a chance in hell. Nope. But it looks entertaining, and if it drops on VOD, I'll probably buy it. I might. I, I don't I don't feel a huge connection to Russell Crowe, like, you know, obviously. Um, but the I, the main thing is like this is not the one that's gonna save anything. So, so just don't get your hopes up. <laughs> no. The other one though is a Spike Lee Vietnam War heist thriller called Defive Bloods, and that looks fucking awesome. Yes, indeed. That's gonna be really good. Yeah, and that'll go straight to Netflix. So we'll be able to yeah. do that. That's it. I haven't watched that, so I'll have to I'll have to check out the trailer for that. I'm I'm a big uh big fan of Spike Lee, like especially with his early stuff. Oh man. Um, 
God, Do the Right Thing is one of the best movies of all time. Yeah. He was just, he was one of these people that had this unique voice. And it was also this interesting blend of like French New Wave, like influence with some of his stuff and how he like, he played around a lot. And he, and he wasn't scared to do that. No, fuck no. I mean, he, like, what, what did he have to lose? What was somebody going to be like, yeah, we're not going to make your next movie. Well, fuck exactly. it. I'm going to go make, I'm going to go make the movie I want to make anyway. That's yeah. one of the reasons why I love uh, Jim Jarmusch movies. Oh, he just, gosh. He just <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, yeah. Great call. Yeah. Spike Lee has always, I mean, I, I don't even love all of his movies. Some of them are just not that great to me, but I will always respect his tenacity to kind of stick to his own vision. And like the Black Klansman, it didn't need to end that way, but he wanted it to, so it did. Yeah, very true. I've not, I've I barely tapped into Spike Lee, and I've talked about that a bit on the podcast before. And uh, I will make an effort to look into more of his stuff. I know um she's got to have it is on Netflix, so I'll be oh, watching. Oh, so soon. good. Yeah, yeah. And I, I have a pretty good collection. I'll, I'll let you borrow some one day. I mean, we'll do a Spike Lee episode. I'm sure at some point. <laughs> right on. Uh, indie film director Lynn Shelton has died at age 54 from a blood disorder. Shelton was an up-and-comer known for her films Hump Day, Your Sister's Sister, and the miniseries Little Fires Everywhere, among yeah. other things. And uh, this was a big shock in the indie community. Sucks, man. She was dating Mark Marin. Oh. Yeah. That's a shame. Yeah, sad stuff, man. And, and you know, that that show just came out on Hulu, right? You know, it just, yeah, that just yeah. sucks. To not, not really be able to see people digest your art, your craft, is that's got to suck. For sure. And then finally, veteran comedic actor Fred Willard has died at age 86 from natural causes. Willard is perhaps best known for his work with Christopher Guest on the films Best in Show, A Mighty Wind, and For Your Consideration. He also had a memorable role in 2004's Anchorman, among many other appearances over the years. And this one hit me hard. I really, I loved Fred Willard. That guy was funny as hell. He was my favorite thing about Best in Show. And I had no idea he was in his 80s. Right? He looked guy, great. Like he could be 55. Yeah, he looked great. What a shocker, man. Uh, I watched uh, Best in Show this past weekend, like, in honor of him, and I was just, I was rolling. That is such a funny, weird movie. Fucking dog people. Like, <laughs> so great. <laughs> oh, damn. Rest in peace, Fred. Uh, before we sign off for the day, I'd like to announce that in the next month, Austin and I will be debuting a new show. It's called Oscar Sunday, and it will be a weekly dive into the history of Oscar winners, nominees, and hopefuls. We'll also be reviewing newly released movies to follow the yearly Oscar race, assuming we ever get any new movies. With the launch of that show, the Filmgasm podcast will also be changing. We will only be doing one episode a week on Wednesdays, and it will be our regular format, but it will not just be horror. We're adding genre films of all kinds, so expect a lot more horror but also action, sci-fi, and fantasy. So you still get your weekly B-movie fix, and if you want to hear us rant about cinema classics and awards, tune in Sunday. And when this, when this show is ready to go, we're going to announce it here first. Check our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for updates on the status of Oscar Sunday. We hope you give it a listen when it comes out. So we're going to do this one and next week's with uh, the same format, but after that, uh, we're going to be tweaking it a bit. Um. Uh, yeah, I can't wait. I think it's going to be cool. Uh, like you said, film guys will always be horror first because that's the best genre of all time. That always will be the best genre where the, the 
most interesting stuff, the most challenging and captivating stuff stays and, and lives. But I think it's important to uh, broaden your horizons. And I think this will give us an opportunity to see more, to watch more foreign stuff. That's not necessarily one at the Oscars, but connected the Oscars in some way. So it's just, it's just a way to talk about more movies. Yeah. Austin and I love the Oscars. We love the history of the awards. So to be able to dive into that would just be fun for us. Well, we hate them too. <laughs> we, yeah, we, we hate some of their decisions and we'll be able to bitch about it. So it'll be fun. Uh, well, thanks for list. Thanks for making it this far. Listeners. Hope you enjoyed scream tune in Friday for American pie. I want to thank Josh for making his debut on the show. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> next week, Austin and I are going into the badass vampire Western near dark starring Bill Paxton, Lance Henriksen and Adrian pastor. Directed by Oscar winner Catherine Bigelow and one of the best vampire movies I've never seen. First time watch for me. Sure to be a great one. Oh, and, <laughs> I got to watch these things at some point. So this show is actually giving me an excuse to finally watch a lot of these movies. So I love that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you, you children. You're, you're so, you're so fortunate to just be able to just pick them up whenever you want to. I, I had to, fucking scour the shelves for these kinds of things and uh, yeah you know oh, <laughs> word of mouth was really big for a lot of this stuff um which is 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 coming back around it now. is especially with um, horror yeah 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 well that's 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 how horror has persisted especially a lot of the yes. underground stuff um it was always like dude you've never seen that oh my god <laughs> I will I will also say um, I don't know how it is for you guys in Texas, but um, look into um, patroning your drive ins. Those yeah. have been opening up a lot. So go for them. Um, if you've never been, it's a great experience. Um, it's a great way to sit in your car, uh, do whatever you want and watch some movies. Um, you know. <laughs> Fill in the blank with whatever that is. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's it's one of these things like uh, Caleb had never been to a drive-in that that I know of, and he and I went for a double feature of Terminator One and Two. Uh, Perfect. Yeah, yeah, it was great. It was great. So good. So good. Totally worth. It. Um, but yeah, like you miss that you miss that experience of going to the movies. This is how you can get it in a way that's been around since the fucking fifties. So, yeah. yeah. Well, know. two things. I have been to a drive-in. I do enjoy the drive-in. There is one about 25 minutes away from uh, my family's place. So, you know, New Braunfels. There's one down there. Yeah. So I'll have to check that out. We have actually been talking about that. And another thing, my family's actually in the process of building our own movie theater right now. So, yeah. Um, we have a big old outdoor screen that we've installed on the wall of our uh, garage we bought a whole bunch of uh, outside lounge chairs and we're going to be debuting uh our new setup this weekend with starship troopers so it's uh yeah we're very excited about this so this will hold off our movie blues until we can go back and just yeah. you know be a fun thing to do oh i want pictures oh i'll send you pictures it's going to be really cool <laughs> get your ass down to texas and we'll all go over man oh yeah I've I have I have thought about Texas like checking it out for a while. Um, my wife actually has a friend who she lives in Colleen, and okay. from what I've heard that like 
ghetto redneck bill. I don't know. A um, L- little bit, a little bit. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I've, I've always wanted to go. Um, obviously, you know, there's a lot of a lot of history with horror movies, especially, you know, Texas Chainsaw and things like that. Oh, yeah. I've been um, to the house. I've been to the house where they filmed uh, Texas Chainsaw. It's a restaurant. Yes. I know. I know. And I want to go by the gas station, like all that stuff. Like I want to see all of that. Um, so one of these days I'm going to, um, I won't have to twist my wife's arm because she's going to get to see a friend of hers. So yeah, we'll just have to make a plan and we'll, we'll definitely make it happen for sure. Awesome. Kick ass, man. Keep me updated on that. Cause yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> right on, man. Uh, this was a great episode. I had a lot of fun. And uh, remember, if a psycho calls you when you're alone and wants to know your favorite scary movie, you'd best remember your trivia because he ain't going to stop and not knowing horror movies might get you killed. See you Friday. Peace.